Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Y'all a brew heads? Yeah, we brew heads. So pour a glass of craft beer. We can do this. Yeah. What's good, y'all? This is C Certified Brewhead, and welcome to episode 102 of Beer Another Podcast Adjunct Series. This evening, we are back with, I think this may be, which is pretty bad for us to be honest, the first brewery from Massachusetts that we have on the podcast. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, I'm glad we finally did it. And also, this brewery is fascinating to me. This is uh, the value prop or the, the concept of the brewery is something that I personally have never seen before. Um, so I'm really fascinated to get into it. So please welcome Colleen from Greater Good Imperial Brewery in the building. Welcome, Colleen. So nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you as well. This is uh, this is really great. So uh, I'm super excited to hear about the brewery. I was, you know, when we got in touch, I was I looked into you guys a lot and checked out the website and all your socials. So I'm seeing and getting the vibe of what you're doing. I've seen breweries literally doing the opposite being session breweries where they're keeping everything under four or five percent i haven't seen the opposite so i am fascinated to get the story on that um first and foremost though i think it's beer time we're going to start off with your flagship beer pulp daddy what a sick name that is hilarious it stands for something right the pulps so the original pulp um uh, so we before we launched Pulp Daddy, we had uh, original pulp, so just pulp, and that standard stands for Paul's Ultimate Lupulin Protocol, uh, named after Paul, our founder, who's a total science geek, and uh, I guess wanted to go a little bit Big Bang Theory-esque with that naming convention. That's awesome. I love it. It's very evocative, you know, pulp being like, this is a juicy New England IPA at 8%. It's, uh, you know, it really gives you exactly the mental uh, image that you, you're expecting. I'm going to take a picture of that first and foremost. Tell us about this beer. What's the hops in it? Um, you know, what's the inspiration behind it? This is fascinating. Yeah, so, I mean, I already alluded to Pulp being kind of the, the predecessor to Pulp Daddy. Yes. Um, and Pulp was really our first foray into trying to do a, a good, juicy, hazy New England IPA. Um, okay. We had done, it was only the second IPA that we had ever made was the, the OG Pulp, if you will. Okay. And that beer is phenomenal. Um, it's still in our portfolio. Um, but we wanted, you know, kind of our next iteration to be even juicier, even hazier, kind of take that all up a notch. So Citroen Mosaic hops um, wanted to get an even, even clearer kind of a haze on it. And um, yeah, so we were, when we were trying to figure out what the name should be, we just kind of internally were calling it Pulp Daddy because we knew that it was trying to be the bigger, better version of Pulp. Um, <laughs> and so we were like, oh, just Pulp Daddy on all the boards. And then it's like, oh, crap, we need to print some labels. What are we going to call this beer? And thus Pulp Daddy was born. And uh <laughs> So many other daddies now in the uh, the greater good family. Oh, I love it. That's a, that's yeah. a great naming convention. Always entertaining. It's got a great uh, citrusy, tropical nose. Yep. Cheers, first of all. Yes, cheers. Oh, yeah. That's, buddy's great. God, pillowy, velvet. Yeah, total juice bomb, but so light-bodied. Um, you know, we call it nectar of the hop gods. I mean, cause that's what it tastes like to us for sure. I love that. I love it. Um, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of like, talk me through some of the other flavor profile here. It's sort of like some stone fruit. A little bit, um, 
yeah, some citrusy, um, you know, a little bit of stone fruit, a little bit of orange juice I, I kind of get on it. Um, sometimes folks get a little bit of a mango taste to it. Um, but really, I think just, you know, true juice bomb all, all the way around. Yeah, um, really green. That's fantastic. It's surprising. I mean, like 8%, obviously, you can feel it. But it's insanely drinkable for, for like, dangerously uh, drinkable for that ABV. Yeah, I would say that's, you know, if, if there was a uh, internal tagline for greater good, dangerously drinkable is probably is it? it. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, that was what the, the whole brewery was created behind, was trying to do big beers, but in a way that didn't have that boozy afterburn and just drank really smooth. Um, and so that's, you know, why we, we, you know, created the brewery. That's what we've always set out to do. So I think uh, most people... Get maybe a little bit scared when uh, you know they see some of the big beers, but the second totally. they taste them, they're like, "Wow, I, I would not have expected." And we like to do some like guess the ABV tastings and stuff like uh, that, and uh, nobody ever guesses correct. Oh, I can imagine. Like this is a trip because it, it gives you. It probably kind of drinks more like a six, six and a half as far as mm-hmm. the the sort of the warming, the booze warming. Sort of like you know a lot of uh, lower ABV ones are sort of built like. You know, a bit better these days, but usually sometimes the eight, well, you know, this can start to, you can really start to taste it. But obviously, if this is your expertise, this is what you guys do, it's not entirely surprising at all. This is fantastic. I checked on Untapped, there was like some insane, like 20 something thousand check ins to this beer. I want to see what, you know, what's going on. Like, Jesus, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's by far our biggest seller. It's about 50% of our sales are, are Pulp Daddy. So we say that, uh, mm. you know, Daddy Warbucks paying the bills for us. <laughs> I love it. This is great. This is really, really yeah. fantastic. Um, so, obviously, let, let's start before we get into the brewery itself. Let's start with you specifically. I forgot to ask you before. What was your position at the brewery? Yeah, so I'm currently uh, chief commercial officer, um, but taking on an expanded role soon. I don't know when this podcast is uh, releasing, but next week, uh, starting uh, July first, I'll be uh, taking over as CEO of the brewery. Oh wow! Congratulations. Thank that's you. That's very cool. Um, that's a, a great. So how long have you been with the brewery? Only six months. Um, Jeez. So I consulted. Uh, I consulted for the brewery back in uh, 2021, um, and really gelled with the team, um, connected really well with the founder who was trying to look for, you know, a new leader to come in so that um, he could kind of take a step back from some of the day-to-day and still just be involved in more of a strategic level. Um, and, you know, the the fit just worked out. So came in initially as CCO and then um, basically with all responsibilities except for operations and brewing the beer myself. Uh, we have a great ops and brewing team for that, um, but now uh, we'll, uh, we'll absorb that function as well and, and have all the uh, brewers uh, reporting into me as well. Um, still letting them do their thing because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 100%. Very, <laughs> very key with this specifically. Well, that is amazing. Congrats on that. That's, uh, that is Thank huge. You. The beer story, how did you personally get exposed to craft beer and kind of fall in love with it to make it to want to make it a career? Yeah, I mean, if you ask my older brother, he would probably say I followed him into the industry. He's a brewer um, and he got into the industry maybe a year or two before I did. Okay. Um, I will not say that I followed him into the industry at all. <laughs> you know, I won't, won't give him that uh, pleasure. I was actually... Um, in Richmond, Virginia, working for a company called CarMax, so big used car dealer down here in the States. Oh, I heard about that, yeah. Yeah, um, and, 
you know, I just kind of thought beer sounded like more fun than used cars. <laughs> a little bit. But I'll, ad- I'll admit I wasn't actually like very purposefully trying to get into the craft beer industry. I basically knew I kind of wanted to get out of the used car industry, uh, started searching around for different opportunities that I thought were in cool cities and in cool industries. And craft beer out in Portland, Oregon, checked both of those boxes. So I threw my hat in the ring for a job I did not think I was going to get at a at Craft Brew Alliance as uh, their uh, head of strategy, and um, they uh, they wanted me, I guess. So jumped from used cars into craft beer, telling some crazy stories during the interview process of all of the similarities between the two uh, two industries that somehow somebody believed enough to uh, to offer me the job. But uh, but the rest is history from there. That's amazing. So you were there for a few years and then moved to Greater Good. Is that the path or was there a few steps in between? Um, kind of, uh, so I was at CBA for about five years, variety of different roles. Um, uh, initially started out, like I said, in uh, as head of strategy. As part of that, I absorbed our mergers and acquisition function um, and had the distinct honor of leading the acquisition of three breweries that we closed all on the same day, which I would never recommend anybody try to acquire three breweries on the same day. Um, that was, uh, you know, I think myself and our general counsel probably didn't sleep for the month leading up to it. Um, and then it was kind of no good deed goes unpunished. So all three of those breweries were um, East Coast based and I'm originally from the East Coast. So um, our CEO said, hey, Colleen, like, how about you fly back east and, and run our East Coast business and all of those breweries that you just acquired? Uh, so I flew back east, started uh, running the East Coast business operations for CBA, did that, uh, you know, for a couple of years through, uh, through the early part of the pandemic. And then CBA got acquired by Anheuser-Busch. Um, so, uh, you know, the Russian dolls of, of acquisitions going on there a little bit. Um, so we got gobbled up by, uh, by AB. I joined AB um, at, at the time of the acquisition as head of strategy for their craft division, which was then 21 breweries uh, large. Um, stuck around for a little bit uh, post-acquisition, you know, trying to make sure integration went well and, and get a feel for all that. But pretty quickly realized that that just wasn't the, the spot for me. No disrespect to you know, anyone there. But just wasn't the right fit, so decided to venture off on my own. Uh, started my own consulting company, Second Sip Beverage uh, Consulting, Good. and that's how Paul ultimately found me. Um, I was actually doing a an interview kind of like this for uh, craft beer professionals, and he stumbled upon that. I never thought that that stuff was actually going to work for promotional uh, <laughs> materials for the consulting business, but I just like talking to other people in the industry about beer. Um, but he stumbled upon something I did and, uh, you know, said, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like you to consult for the brewery, uh, came up to Worcester, uh, did a little bit of consulting in 2021, just to identify some growth opportunities and just, you know, business assessment overall, um, really fell in love with what they were doing, fell in love with the team. The beers obviously are phenomenal. And so when he made me an offer to, uh, join full time, despite, it involving moving from North Carolina to Worcester, Massachusetts in January. Somehow, <laughs> somehow that made gotcha. sense to me at the time. And uh, yeah, so I moved up here in January to, uh, to join the company. That's crazy. Did you, was this your first uh, experience with this level of weather? Or you sort of lived in the, 
this type of environment before? So I was born in uh, Rochester, New York. I think oh, we actually know. had a yeah, brewery More from times. Rochester on the podcast recently. Um, I was trying to look at some of your recent episodes before I jumped on this thing. Um, but originally from Rochester, but moved out when I was pretty young. So my blood has thinned a lot since then. <laughs> so it had been it had been a while since I dealt with the cold, that's for sure. It's not funny. Eh? I can imagine, particularly from the West Coast and then from North Carolina. I've been having to come back where I'm we're in Canada here, so it's even worse, but it's kind of not too dissimilar from what I understand. Yep. I know Vermont is like essentially identical with us in Montreal here. And you guys aren't too further south. The thing that always pisses me off is New York. I see their weather, I'm like, and they're complaining. I'm like, it's basically summer, and they're complaining. It's, uh, yeah, but it's I mean, fair. Rochester, Buffalo, you get that lake effect snow, and that's true. That is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no, Rochester. I, I guess when I said New York, I meant the city, not the upstate. Yes. You're 100 percent correct because Rochester's just around from Toronto, and they don't, you know, they don't get it easy there either. So, nah. okay, fascinating. Where is, is it, what, I was actually going to ask you how to say it. I thought it was one of those British names where you, you didn't say it the same. Worcester? Worcester? It, Worcester, yeah. W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. Where is that in relation to, you know, people who know, I guess, everyone knows Boston, like how far away? Yeah, is so it's about an hour away from Boston. It's in central Mass. So if you drive about an hour west, you'll uh, run into Worcester. Fun fact, it is actually the second largest city in New England behind Boston, Um, So it is bigger than Portland, Maine. It's bigger than Providence. Um, You know, I I certainly did not know that before I moved up here. But uh, I think some uh, Worcester folks have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder for uh, being thought of as smaller than they really are. (laughs) And, well, we settled that here. So people know now. Okay. I know too. Okay. That's awesome. So the brewery itself, do you, are you able to speak to, I mean, for whatever sort of level of knowledge being you've been there six months and you're about to run the ship, like just a, a bit of the story behind the brewery and its sort of beginnings and particularly why the choice to go for Imperial beers specifically or exclusively? Yeah, so, I mean, the Imperial concept was completely Paul uh, Paul's brainchild. So Paul's the founder. Um, he had a passion for, for big Imperial beers. And uh, back in the early 2000s, he was kind of fostering the, this passion. But he didn't feel like any of the beers that he was tasting were that great. He thought mm. most of them left that kind of either kind of syrupy mouthfeel to them that you get with some of the bigger beers or... Uh, just had a really harsh, boozy kind of aftertaste to it. Mm. Um, and so he set out with this notion, I think in, initially just for his own pleasure to like make a beer that he was actually going to enjoy drinking, um, started making some some really good ones as he was home brewing, decided to kind of test out whether or not uh, he could turn this hobby into a business, just like a lot of, you know, home brewers do. Um, so though, interestingly, so, so Paul has a science background. He's a biotech and entrepreneur by, by trade. Um, so he took a very scientific approach to starting the, the brewery, wanted to kind of get proof of concept and really, you know, validate whether or not this thing was really a thing. Um, and so counter to how most breweries start, we didn't start with our own physical brewery. We did not start with a tap brew model and then move out to distribution. Uh, he started by, you know, contract brewing at a couple different facilities initially kind of scaling up, synced up with a distributor in Western Mass, uh, commercial distributors, and said, hey, will you take a runner? I'm trying to like distribute these, see if there's any traction out in the market. They sold out like crazy quickly. At the time they had five five beers, 
one of the beers that we'll try will be one of the original five um, and five beers. And they sold out crazy quick. And so it was like, all right, I guess this thing's a, a real thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, turned it into a business, started looking for a site to actually open a, a proper brewery um, so that we could brew our own stuff versus continuing to just contract brew at other facilities. Um, and so started the brewery officially in 2015. We opened the physical space in Worcester in uh, late 2017, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been been great ever since. That's amazing. So the, yeah. is this the only brewery of its kind that just does Imperial beers? Yes, we are the first and only all Imperial Brewing Company, um, a, a badge of honor that we like to wear. In the country or in, in the global space? In the country, maybe in the world as well, but uh, we haven't validated all of the uh, nooks and crannies kind of, of everywhere else. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. The what was the so I mean obviously this style you you've clearly IPA leaning you're in you know you're in New England it's uh, you know you opened around the time when kind of the haze thing was really kicking off out there so it makes complete sense that that's what you lean into and that the audience for those style of beers typically are about like this is the the money this is what people want the double IPAs yeah. so it a, yeah go. Yeah, I mean, so we didn't actually start out trying to be overly IPA-centric. Okay. Um, like I said, we, we launched with kind of five original beers. One of them was an IPA. Uh, one was an Imperial Porter. One was an uh, Imperial Alt beer with cherries. Uh, mm. One was a kind of Imperial Saison, um, but a little bit, uh, maybe a hoppy Saison, I would say. Um, and then the fifth, what am I missing? Um, an Imperial Stout. Um, so those were the five original, uh, which we call our passport series because they were all named after a different location and took kind of some global inspiration behind it. Um, but certainly we were not trying to like jump all in and be, you know, America's only all Imperial IPA brewery um, by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, uh, obviously that's, you know, IPA is still king of craft. It's even more so king of Imperial craft. So when you look at the Imperial sub-segment, it actually skews even further towards IPA than uh, craft at large. Um, so naturally, our portfolio started flexing more and more into uh, IPAs. Being in New England, most of those were kind of fit the, the trend and style up in this neck of the woods. Um, but we're um, introducing a lot more style diversity, and that's still uh, something that we really you know, pride ourselves in, um, as, as we think about our vision for the future, you know, we, we continue to say, Hey, we, we want to be America's all Imperial brewing company. We want to be the authority on Imperial beers. That doesn't mean that we are just the authority on Imperial IPAs or Imperial hazy IPAs very specifically. So we need to keep pushing the envelope and, you know, innovate and explore and really push the boundaries of, all of the different styles and how we can imperialize just about anything out there. We'll try a couple of our imperial sours um, a little bit later, which are, you know, doing really well for us. Um, but we're also got a, a few more experiments coming down the pipe of uh, some different styles that aren't in a traditionally ever high ABV, but we're going to uh, take a, take a run at imperializing them. I was about to ask, is there a kind of a two part question? What are some of the other beers in the portfolio? Like, obviously, like you said, tonight we're going to do some sours and some other IPAs, which is I'm stoked for. 
Um, what are some of the other uh, styles that you're continuing to do now you know, over and above the ones that you launched with? And uh, what, if you can speak to it, like, is there anything that's kind of been like ridiculous or fun that was like typically a low ABV beer, like a table beer or something? You're like, let's make it 8%. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've, we've got just about, you know, we've got stouts, porters, sours, um, like we still have our kind of more like Bel the Saison kind of morphed into more of a Belgian IPA at okay. this point. Um, but, but right now pretty skewed IPA heavy in the portfolio. And so one of the first things that I identified when I got in was like, Hey, we might need to slim down our IPA portfolio, create some more room in the portfolio for more innovation. Um, and right now we're, uh, I've tasked the brewers with experimenting with um, an Imperial blonde uh, that we want to come out with um, later this year um, at our first ever Imperial Fest, which we'll host at the brewery, invite a bunch of other breweries to showcase their um, Imperial beers and kind of celebrate the um, high ABV beers out there. Um, and so for that, obviously, we want to experiment and do a few different things. So experimenting with an Imperial Blonde, I've thrown out Imperial Lagers, Imperial Pilsners, yes. It sometimes makes the uh, the brewers uh, cringe when I say some of that, but <laughs> I, I have complete faith in them. So we'll we'll continue to experiment and play around with uh with some of those. Um, but but I think the next kind of unique one that will come out will probably be that Imperial Blonde. That's going to be an interesting one. Have yeah. you you haven't done any sort of like crispies or you know in the Lager family um, yet? <laughs> No, I mean, so we, we do have a, like, sister brewery, um, Soul Purpose, which is Soul Purpose Sessions that does exclusively low ABV stuff. It's basically uh, only a tap, it's only a tap room offering, really, predominantly. We distribute it a little bit in our, our home market, but um, really, we need to keep butts in chairs a little bit longer, and uh, yeah. there's only so long people can uh, stick around the tap room if they're uh, pounding 8, 10, 12% <laughs> IPAs. Uh, all afternoon. So uh, we do some Pilsners and Lagers through that line, some Session IPAs, okay, um, sure. but that's all under a different brand so that we don't um, kind of tarnish the, the greater good kind of brand discipline in being exclusively Imperial beers. So that is we definitely know how to play with that style, but then it's like, all right, so just, just take it up a notch, man. <laughs> Hey, I totally get it. I love it. I actually, one of the, your brewers followed me on Instagram today and I checked his profile and he had sole purpose. So I went and followed because said it was based out of it, but I didn't look into it enough because I was like, well, I'll deal with that later. And I didn't <laughs> realize that that's what it was. That's actually genius. Like looking at now, like checking out the Instagram and seeing what you're doing, like lots of like lighter crispies and um, I guess what's this? Like it looks like a pale ale or something like that. Like that's perfect. So it gives people yeah. who maybe aren't into the big beers like something separate. Whilst, like you said, it's not uh, you know watering down or altering the initial brand that really got you to where you are. So that is extremely, yeah. very, very smart. It's very cool. I love that because one of my questions was going to be, how do you manage um, the consumption? Like, is, is it just like you know maybe you don't do full pause like this, or is it like? How does that work? Because that's fa that's fascinating too. Yeah, I mean, so we um, we only do thirteen ounce tulips really at the brewery, um, unless you're a mug club member, and then we two pours some mugs of uh, of the big boys. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, just like any other bar, right? Like, you know, bartenders have to do a good job anywhere of kind of monitoring consumption. And, you know, breweries don't tend to get as like crazy as like a traditional bar. So, I mean, our guests are are well behaved, as well behaved as they need to be while still having a good time. And I think in general, I would actually say people are more conscious of it when they're drinking higher ABV beers because they know like, oh, wow, this is 12%. I got to be mindful of what I'm drinking. Whereas if you're drinking, you know, four or five, 6% beer, you're not really thinking about that as much. So that could probably sneak up on you just as quickly as uh, as some of these big guys. Honestly, it, it really can. I feel like it's uh, you can't overestimate how that goes as well. But I, I, I was thinking that too. It's like people are, are obviously well aware where they're at and they will, you know, adjust their consumption accordingly because otherwise, you know, we had, I remember years ago, we did a collab with a brewery that was an 8% double IPA. And this was 2018. I remember there being a lot of friends who weren't just friends, like who had nothing to do with beer. And they came and I heard, uh, they would, they drank like five of them, not realizing what it was. And I heard they were you know, a little bit sick afterwards. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. people don't realize that, you know, you can't <laughs> behave like that with, with, um, with that ABV. Even though 8% doesn't sound like much. You know, some people are sitting there pounding, I don't know, vodka sodas all night, which could be similar. It's just kind of different. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, which is why I think uh, by us being all imperial and being loud and proud about that, it's like this bright, shining warning sign yeah. for anybody who's drinking one of our beers. So uh, they don't accidentally, uh, you know, drink a 12% beer uh, that goes down, you know, remarkably smooth. And uh, suddenly, you know, they're three or four deep on that, and it's bad news bears. Oh, yeah. That's not, not going to be optimal. I was also going to ask them, the, I mean, obviously, the response from the market was highly positive. We started as a contract brewery and then, you know, was positive enough to be like, oh, people want more of this, and, and it led to a physical facility. The response from the community overall, so say if maybe people, like, are people always aware when they come in? that this is what it is? I don't think they're always, there's, I don't think they're always aware. Um, You know, I think a lot of people are really intrigued and excited as we tell that story. Um, Though we, we just wrapped up a lot of consumer research um, because one of the things that I kind of hypothesized was, you know, I think a lot of people still don't really know what Imperial means. Mm -hmm. And so like, how can we talk about this very differentiated value proposition in a way that will actually connect with them and in a way that will um, be speaking their language, not speaking brewer language, right? Yeah. Um, and so we were validated. Yeah, people don't don't know what the word imperial means uh, more often than not. I'm sure most people listening to this podcast are like, what? That's crazy. Uh, but a lot of a lot of the general public does not know what imperial beers mean. So uh, we do a lot of education of trying to explain that. Um, as people walk in, they're always very intrigued about the concept, especially in an environment right now where I feel like all of the headlines are dominated by non-alcoholic beers and seltzers and, you know, low ABV stuff and, and all of that. Um, you know, people are like, whoa, this is you're doing something a little bit different. Like, why, why do you do that? So it gives us an opportunity to connect with them, tell the story. And like we said, when they walk into the tap room, they can also have a sole purpose beer. If they, uh, you know, you still get, 
you know, a handful of folks that walk into any brewery tap room that's like, what do you have that's the closest thing to Bud Light? And uh, rather than just handing them a glass of water, we can, you know, <laughs> refer them over to, a, over to a sole purpose beer if they're not, uh, you know, ready to take that leap to the, the to higher the octane rights. stuff. Okay, that's fascinating. I also was thinking that based on where you're at, even with the knowledge now that it's the second largest city in all the New which is huge, the beer culture in Massachusetts would arguably, and this is kind of a question too, I guess, would arguably, people would, the general public would arguably be more knowledgeable or slightly more educated about beer because, this is a complete, I'm pulling this out of my ass, but uh, because of the sheer volume of just incredible beer out there, I would I would hypothesize that maybe more people just know more about beer. So whilst it's become a trendy thing to like, you know, hey, just meet at a brewery with a bunch of friends, you know, often not all of them know anything about beer or even realize that it's made there or whatever, let alone what an imperial is versus other different things. So is that accurate in any shape or form that maybe the education is a little higher? So therefore you, you probably wouldn't have as many people tripping up as say if it was based somewhere that, wasn't as concentrated? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I've been uh, pretty fortunate to live and work in um, in good beer meccas. Um, yeah. So it's tough for me to have like a, a solid comparison, but I would say that's probably true just because of the number of breweries and, you know, how readily accessible it is around. Um, but even people who frequent breweries all the time, like, you know, a lot of them are treating it like it's their neighborhood bar, it's their community hangout, which is all awesome for the industry, but doesn't necessarily translate into experts. Sometimes it translates into people that think they're experts um, or no, or no more than more than most. But um, but there's still, I think, you know, I think one of the coolest things about this industry is everyone can always be learning. I mean, even if you work in the industry, if you're not always learning and looking to see what other people are doing or what the next innovation is, then you're falling behind because like there's always new stuff coming out and there's always something to, to learn and explore. Could not agree more. Well said. The, I'd say I'm looking at the time, we just hit 30 minutes. I could, like this is my problem. The first beer I get a little always overexcited. Um, and this is delicious. So, uh, like, I, I don't want to put this aside, but we do, you know, we want to make sure that we're showcasing uh, a bunch of the beers. So, shall we move on to the uh, the pineapple IPA? Yes. Let's do it. Tell us about. Uh, do you have it right there? Or do you need to go fetch it? Oh, you are not messing around. The first one on the left. Tell us about uh, the. What's the name of it? There she is. Look at that. Big, big summer. Big summer. Big summer. Um. So Big Summer is our current summer seasonal, um, hence the name. Um, Very cool. It is a 8% uh, Imperial Pineapple IPA. There you go. You're holding that up way better than I, I was. I um, Galaxy and uh, Sabro Hops. Um, super, I mean, this thing, this was our first year brewing this beer. Um, first time we're really getting into seasonals in a big way. Um, and so... Uh, you know, wanted something that was going to be just a great summer sipper, despite being a, you know, 8% 8%. beer. Um, And I think we nailed it. You could be the the judge of it, but we, uh, you know, we, we started out at the beginning of the summer as we were launching it or really in, in April when we launched it for the first time. 
And uh, we only did like a, a couple batches of it. And we were like, we'll see how this goes. Sold out of it, you know, in the tap room and across all of our distributors in like two weeks. Oh, wow. And so we Flew. sped up kind of when the, the second batch of it was going to be. And we've. Um, <laughs> I, I can see why. Um, yeah. That's yeah, awesome. So we've uh, now done our. Uh, I think we're up to having done six or seven uh, 60 barrel batches for the summer season. So wow. um, it's been, it's been flying for us and uh, you know, been our top seller in the tap room for the most part during, uh, during the summer months and just, you know, keeps cranking even more as the, the weather gets nice down here. That's amazing. Okay. Well, yeah. cheers. cheers. Oh yeah. So the interesting yeah. thing, I was this is great. This works so well. I'm going to ask if, a bit more about the pineapple. One thing I find with, particularly with friends of mine, I got one friend I'm thinking of specifically, who just he just doesn't like fruit in IPAs. A beer writer friend, and I'm sort of I find them can they can be kind of hit or miss. I think a, a fruit like pineapple is awesome because the particularly I can already see obviously why you did Sabra you know, with the coconut yeah. there. Um, you're bringing out the pineapple. This is money. I feel like you've, you've got the, the, no wonder it's selling out so quick. Like it doesn't taste like it. Sometimes it can be like a sticky mess sometimes, like to really totally. get those ratios correct because you don't want to outshine the hops too much with the fruit. You don't want to sort of, you know, overdo it and make it this big sticky where it might as well be like a kind of a sour or something. Um, how, did, how did you figure that out? Was this just like, you just nailed it? Your brewers obviously know what the hell they're doing. This is. Yeah. Cool. I mean, all the props in the world to the brewers. So, Right now, we don't even have uh, an operating pilot system. So we oh, experimented this first doing, um, so we have a 30 barrel uh, system at the brewery, but only 60 barrel fermenters. So for efficiency purposes, we always try to double brew. I think our first run, we did just do 30 barrels and then it was tasting good. So we instantly like brewed a few more 60 barrel batches like that same uh, to be ready kind of right around the same time. Mm. Um, because with seasonals, you also have to like nail that timing of when they're going to release. So you gotta gotta roll the light dice a little bit on it. Um, but I just you know give all the props in the world to our brewers of uh, you know being you know appropriately light-handed with the fruit so that it doesn't come overpowering, but it complements the hot profile that we use. The Sabro I think was like a brilliant idea, like you were saying, to like balance that out in a good way. Um, and yeah, it doesn't become overpoweringly pineapple-y, but you could truly, you you definitely get the pineapple on it. So it's not hiding or people aren't like, wait, you said this was a pineapple beer? Where's where's my pineapple? Um, so I, I think they nailed the, the amount spot on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's super, I was about to say it's subtle. I don't know if subtle is really the word, but it just, it's maybe balance is probably the real way to, to approach it. Um, yeah, and balanced is how I normally talk about it. Yeah, it's like you can tell that it's there because it's got this extra kind of tang that normally maybe wouldn't be in a IPA with these flavors. The flavor profile obviously isn't out of the ordinary for anything else, but you just know it's a little, little juicier. There's something yeah. else kind of going on. I feel like I'm getting a bit of, um, is this, I, I often get it confused. Is it kind of a little dank or is it a bit of hot burn? I so love I think both. It, it is a little bit danker than most, especially coming off of Pulp Daddy into this. Yeah. Um, you definitely get a little bit more like bitterness to it than you would on a, a Pulp Daddy. Um, 
But I think that's also maybe a little bit of the coconut that you get on it that gives kind of that that dankness to it as well that comes from the, the Sabro hops. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Also, maybe there's a bit of, um, yeah, that makes complete sense. It almost is like either the, the dank slash like piney resin mixed with maybe a bit of citrus pith, that kind yep. of um, thing. I, I was looking at this, as you were talking before, the tasting notes here as well, like the stone fruit, which is that, I usually associate the stone fruity thing with a bit of that kind of dankness, but this is, this is yep. awesome. This is really good. This is, once again, oh, I've got the pineapple heaps on that right. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it was funny kind of the, because this was probably the first beer that I really had an active hand in coming up with the concept and the naming of it. Um, I think we were trying to, one of the first brew schedule meetings I was sitting in on uh, right after I'd started in January, obviously you got to get out in front of figuring out kind of what, what a summer seasonal is going to be. Um, and we thought about bringing one of our like original beers back as the summer seasonal just to release it. And I was like, if we're going to do seasonals, we got to lean fully into seasonals, like, and call it something simple, call it summer. We make big beers, call it big summer. Like, let's just get after it in a very like simple overt way that celebrates what we're trying to do with it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's been flying and, you know, the uh, seasonals have certainly become a, a way bigger priority. And I think in many ways is another example of us kind of zigging while people are zagging. Seasonals have kind of had their fits and spurts over the last few years. People have kind of moved away from them into just series and different other, you know, rotational things, but not wanting to do kind of the overt seasonal uh, mm. type of thing as much. And we were like, you know we haven't done that in a big way, like with our Imperial twist on it all, like let's go all in on it and, you know, use it also as a vehicle for more of that style diversity. Ironic. I know since we're having another IPA, uh, but we've got, you know, a giant pumpkin beer coming out. Um, we do a giant uh, gingerbread ale uh, around Christmas time. So very overtly leaning into the, the seasonal lineup, getting some different uh, style diversity along the way. And just having some fun with it, right? So that we're not, you know, we love Pulp Daddy to death, but I think the brewers uh, would get bored just brewing that over and over and over again. Oh, uh, even though, even though we could probably sell it as much as much as they can brew, we will be able to sell at that beer for sure. No question. It is, yeah, that, that was spectacular. I absolutely see why that's a that's a flagship. I love all those uh, the seasonals. That that was kind of the next thing I was thinking. Like was. Could you break down sort of the flagships? Obviously, Pop Daddy's the flagship, but are there maybe other year-rounders that uh, that people can always find? And sort of what what's the so obviously the the seasonal is it like one beer per season, and then there's a bunch of kind of more mainstays. Like, what does that kind of look like for you guys? Or do you have like I've seen this a bunch lately where like maybe this the it'd be Big Summer's probably not a good example, but there'd be like a one particular beer that wouldn't be associated with the season, but maybe you bring it back every two, three months or something like that. Like it's not around long. Yeah. So we, we basically break our portfolio into year round beers, um, a few kind of rotational series of which our seasonal lineup is one of those. And then uh, within our tap room, we do limited releases um, that are almost exclusively tap room only if our biggest distributor wants a pallet, we might let them have one or two here and there, um, but trying to make those more exclusive offerings and also a, a kind of innovation bed. And so for our year round offerings, we have, um, this will be good. Like, let me, let me make sure that mm -hmm. I'm on top of it. We have <laughs> eight 
year-round beers right now. Um, so Pulp Daddy's year-round. Uh, Greylock, which we'll try uh, in, a, in a little bit, is year-round. Uh, Funk Daddy, another one that we'll try later, is year-round. And then we have Vibes, which is like a kind of Australian, uh, all Australian hops, kind of like down under, kind of, uh, you know, fun. It's all a tie-dye kind of look to the can. Um, Woo, uh, which a nickname for Worcester is the Woo. Uh, so we named the beer Woo. Um, that's a 10% IPA, kind of has some like Mai Tai type tasty notes to it. Um, so a pretty interesting one there. Um, Lucidity is our clear IPA. Um, so that we have some option that is not hazy. Um, we've got, got a beer out. called Good Good Night Moon um, that is a chocolate milk porter. Um, nice. Is an eleven percenter, also dangerously drinkable. Um, and then we still have um, original pulp, OG pulp, as I like to say, um, as a year-round offering um, because it just has so much of a cult following. We thought it would go away when we launched Pulp Daddy. Um, but people still love the, the OG original version of it. So we still keep that around year round. Um, and then in terms of our, our different series that we do, we have one series that's just Pulp Daddy extensions. So okay. every two months we'll launch kind of a twist on Pulp Daddy. Um, right now we have Blood Orange Pulp Daddy out right now. Um, and so doing that. Um, we have the seasonal lineup, which is four um, over the course of the year. Big summer is running right now. And then we have our funk series, which is our fruited sour series. We'll try one of those um, a little bit later where we release a new fruited sour every two months um, with a different kind of fruit characteristic to it. Um, and this is our first year kind of really getting earnestly into sours. So we've been having a lot of fun with that series. That's great. Okay, so this is, yeah. a, this is a pretty solid amount of diversity in the portfolio already, and obviously the things that you were talking about earlier with uh, you know the blonde or the crispy type of uh, beers and ramping them up is uh, sort of the next challenge, which sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. that's super cool. The I guess the most popular then would still be the IPAs across the board, hence themselves sort of dominating. Just yep. Right, you just go on where the tastes, where the, where the demand is, oh, as you should as a business that needs to thrive. Yeah, so Pulp Daddy is by far a number one beer. It's about 50% of our portfolio in terms of sales. Um, Greylock, which we'll try next, is our second biggest beer in terms of volume, first biggest beer in terms of ABV. Right. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll just take it up a notch in a, in a moment when we shift <laughs> over to that beer, uh, if you're ready for it. Um, a must but, uh but together, those two beers represent about 65% of our volume um, out in the market. Obviously, within the tap room, a lot more innovation and a lot more, you know, fragmentation of what we're selling, though Pulp Daddy is uh, still consistently, Pulp Daddy and, and Big Summer have been consistently our one and two sellers over the last couple months, for sure. Very cool. Speaking of the innovation in the tap room, so obviously, you know, we'll be mostly focusing on things that are packaged and, and sold and stuff. Um, I imagine you're sort of just pumping out keg only uh things just to tell oh, you said you didn't have a pilot system though so if you're doing so system- we don't have a pilot system so we do 30 barrel batches for our tapper only stuff which okay. sounds crazy that's probably pretty big. To some, it, <laughs> yeah it's not a it's not small batch that's for sure um no. but 30 barrels but we 
um, we can and keg everything. So we have pretty solid beer to go business. Um, people buying stuff online and coming to pick it up at the tap room, folks coming in, buying cases out the door. Um, so we do a pretty steady amount of cans to go because like I said, like Imperial beers, there's only so many that you're going to drink while you're at the tap room. It is much more of an off premise occasion, much more Mm. of an at home occasion for those, um, because you feel maybe a little bit safer drinking uh, a, a few 12% beers when you're at the comfort of your own home versus it's having true. to figure out your way uh, your way home from the bar after that. <laughs> I, I can absolutely imagine. Like, yeah, I can see sort of you'd be swinging by and you grab yourself a case or a bunch of four packs of, of, of some stuff there and then, you know, grab a, a pour or two of uh, some of your faves and then hand off as opposed to... Yeah. You know, maybe doing that, I can see that a lot. That's really smart, though. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that based on the style, it is definitely just happens to lean into the package business. So it's great that you do have everything packaged. So yeah, and I mean, it it certainly helped us out through COVID. Um, yeah. I, I think we are probably one of the only craft breweries out there that had a higher percentage of our business in package pre-COVID than we do now. So we were 90% packaged product pre-COVID, um, obviously that went to like basically a hundred percent during COVID like it did for, uh, for so many others. Um, but it's really just, you know, since, you know, restrictions and bars started opening that we've actually earnestly got into on-premise business in a more material way. Um, so again, kind of, uh, I feel like the headline for greater good is like, you know, we're, we're the like counterculture. We are zigging while everyone's zagging at like our whole history just feels very backwards relative to probably a lot of the other breweries that you think about when you think about their trajectory of starting draft only and then jumping into package and, you know, just everything's kind of flipped on its head over here, which was one of the things that, that excited me about coming to greater good because, you know, doing something completely different, having a really different growth trajectory that have gotten them to where, where we are now and having a lot more kind of creative optionality for how we think about growth going forward than, um, than some other breweries might have to have kind of the standard playbook for how they grow from hyper-local taproom only to, you know, regional to, you know, a little bit bigger through concentric circles. We're not as uh, handcuffed by just being you know, a local Worcester brewery. We, we obviously love our Worcester beer community, um, but we feel we feel very confident when we talk about ourselves as America's all imperial brewing company and the growth aspiration that that, that um, kind of paints for the future of the brewery. Love it. I love the way you're talking about this, by the way. I feel like I, am, I own a business and I'm in a marketing agency and I studied marketing, so I love, I feel like, a lot of breweries are sort of there's like different approaches to it. They're, you know, just people just happy making beer and doing their thing. And like because I, I really value and appreciate the other stuff. I love the way you're talking about this. This is hitting the spot for me. I appreciate it. It's I know. I'll, I'll I'll admit I was like intimidated coming on. I was like I bet he talks to mostly brewers. I don't make beer. Um, so I, 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 prob- I look. I look at the industry maybe a little bit differently than uh, than some of the brewers that you chat with. Have a ton of respect for kind of the the skill set uh, that that brewers have. Um, not personally a skill set that I have, but uh, you know it, it gives you know a different angle to look about and think the, think about the industry from. 
Oh, for sure. I look for the over. We've been doing this for seven years, so you know, over the years, you talk to basically everybody in every position: front of house, back of house, whether it's production, ownership, head brewers, like marketing people. It doesn't really matter. I would just say that the conversations typically don't hit the things that you're talking about, but those are the things that outside of beer, that the stuff that I'm talking about with my partner and all the, the, the business stuff that I'm doing. And I find that one thing about beer that I think people forget that it is a business and the way that you're talking about it is, you know, maybe some of the, the purists are just like, oh man, it's just, you know, let's just stick to the beer. I'm like, well, man, that's a, you know, people do have to understand it is a business and you do have to approach it like this. So I really, I, I kind of get off on it. I love hearing the concept of beer which is something I'm passionate about be put into the context of the actual, you know, value prop and the way that you're approaching the market and the segmentation and all this stuff. I don't know. It's just I think it's really cool and I think it's actually important for both the audience, the beer drinking audience, to maybe be reminded from time to time that hey, you know, the people who you respect who are making this stuff have to also deal with what, you know, you Colleen are talking about right now. Um and maybe to the other industry viewers that we have, I know we have a, a decent volume of industry folks as well. And, you know, I feel like it's actually teaching people some stuff who may not, you know, not every brewery can have a you around, like someone in your role that brings what you bring to the table. Um, obviously, Greater Good is a, a brewery that's probably a little scaled up. I, I'd be like, then maybe, a, and I guess it's really hard to sort of put it in context, but it sound, from the sounds of it, most because most breweries don't talk in the way that you got you are, I would imagine that that indicates. And also, you talk about the physical size of the batches. The sixty barrels is pretty damn big for a for a batch to be pumping this other stuff out. So I imagine you might be at a little bit sort of a higher level with the, the distribution volume and, and the volume that you're actually pumping out and the way that you're approaching everything. It's uh, I just think it's valuable across the board. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll do probably about twelve thousand barrels this year, um, just yeah. for context for for everyone. Um, so, you know, I mean, bigger than many, but you know, but from my view, like you know, coming from a world of you know craft brew alliance, working with AB, like you know, you look at some of those breweries, and it's like, all right, we're a long ways away from that. So, I, I think it's a, a fun size to be at, and a fun kind of time to be at Greater Good, really entering in kind of this next stage of growth. Love it. I'd love to hear it. You mentioned just coming back, that was just a quick sidebar because I'm sure I appreciated it. You mentioned the pre-pandemic, you were doing 90% of the business in cans uh, and the rest in kegs. And then now it's kind of balanced out a bit. Like what changed for you guys, I guess, once the restrictions lifted um, as far as the approach to kegging stuff and getting out into licensees and things like that? Was it just interest or you wanted to switch it up or how did that go? I mean, I, I think it was just focus. Um, I think it was also, um, you know, getting more like, you know, Pulp Daddy now as our, our kind of true flagship as an 8% beer. That's a little bit more approachable. We, we like to say eight is the new five <laughs> at the brewery. <laughs> so 8% is the new 5% in our minds. So, you know, it should, should be as drinkable as, uh, you know, any other 5% beer that you're having out at the, out at the bar. So I think just with having more options that kind of fit that on-premise drinking um, occasion, tons of support from our distributors to go bigger on that, but, but really just kind of focus and execution. I mean, I think the opportunity to a certain degree was always there. It's just like any other, you know, business, you got to pick your battles and priorities at any given time. Um, so 
I think, uh, you know, we're, we're thankful about where we were pre-pandemic because it probably helped us weather the storm uh, better than better than a lot that were like very heavily skewed tap room only or on premise heavy on, on kegs. Um, so very thankful of the position that we were in kind of going into such a tough time for the, for the industry and for, you know, the world at large. Um, but now, you know, the world's opened back up and people are going out and, you know, we want to be a part of that party. Yeah. I love it. Okay. That's great. That is really cool. And I think I actually, that's kind of a nice segue. I've noticed that I can probably speak to here in Montreal and in Toronto that the, I've noticed this from people I talk to, from the vibe online, just from people around me, that there's a level of, I don't know if excitement's the word, but people are just keen to get out. They want to go out, they want to hit bars, they want to go to breweries, they want to go to restaurants, just be out and about because the last two years was such, you know, so many restrictions, so many, you know, you couldn't do anything. So I've noticed that. Is that pretty similar down there? Yeah, I mean, well, sample size of one, I I will raise my hand and say I was fully like that. I, uh, I, you know, I was bouncing off my walls, kind of ready to to get back out after uh, lockdowns were were lifted, um, going to stir crazy. I don't think I had been at home for that length of time ever. My my job during the pandemic. Uh, had had me traveling about 80% of the time. Like I said, at the time I was covering the, the full East coast for, uh, for craft for Alliance. So I had 22 States in my, my territory. So I was always on the road to different markets. Um, and you go from being kind of always in a different place, always connecting with different people to suddenly trapped in the like four walls of your, uh, apartment. And I was like, man, if things don't change sooner rather than later, we're going to have to pad these four walls because <laughs> I, I was definitely ready to get back out. But, you know, beyond myself, I think we're definitely seeing it uh, across, you know, consumers broadly of just, you know, ready to to get back to some level of normalcy, right? You know, uh, you know, the return to normal probably isn't the, the right way to think about it, but, you know, living in this new normal and, and getting back to being able to have some fun and go out and socialize, um, we're social creatures, right? At the end of the day, exactly. so you can only you can only uh, you know hold us back from that so long uh, before we'll want to you know bust out of our cages. You're so right. Well said. And I, I, wow, that must have been extra tough for you though, being the uh, drug being traveling. Jeez, that's uh, that's hard. Yeah. 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 It was. Uh, I mean, like with everyone else, though, right? I mean, I had it. I had it better than a lot of others. I, I shouldn't, you know. Uh, paint this, you know, tragic story of my life traveling and that I'm sitting around working from home still um, happily employed, you know, I, it could have been a lot worse. That's very true. Very, very true. Counting blessings, right? So yeah. like, okay, so that's definitely a thing. I wonder if then, because I, you know, when this all started, I was sort of like, oh, what's going to happen with breweries? Are, are they going to be kind of screwed? But I, like, I, I, from what I could tell from everyone I spoke to in, in different places that the demand kind of almost was the other way around. People were just losing their minds, at least in the beginning, stocking up and drinking crazy. Then it kind of leveled out. Um, and then now it's got to the stage where I wonder if there's good, because I imagine it was in the beginning kind of almost a skyrocket of growth and it kind of dipped to sort of level and then maybe roller coasted a bit. But maybe now with this, all the breweries obviously everywhere weren't really kegging at all. So now it's like gone, you know, all, all the bars want to be back in business and they're going to be demanding it. So for even from what I've seen, it seems like there's been a bit of a ramp up across the board with draft products and stuff, which is pretty cool. So I, I wonder if, do you, like, 
does it look like it's almost like a it's gonna say renaissance it's a little bit extra but you know like a whole new lease on life for for breweries tap room but also for beer bars or other places just pouring all this beer like have you seen that sort of um that change like the demand and excitement i guess from the industry side not just from the consumer but from like your licensees like get me cakes i want pulp daddy on cakes give me a bunch of them you know that type of vibe you know i i, I would say now yes um now that things have I think people are more confident about where we're at in this kind of, you know, roller coaster ride and, and can kind of bank on things remaining open and not, you know, rolling back on us. But I would say in the early phases of stuff opening up, there was probably still a level of cautiousness as things opened back up. Um, so you may have seen, you know, a bar that had 16 draft lines say, uh, I might only put like eight, eight, drafts on because if things shut down again, I don't want to be sitting on a bunch of kegs that I ate the cost on and, and all of that. So I think, you know, I think as an industry brewers need to remember that, you know, yeah, we had some tough times as an industry, but bars and restaurants had an even tougher time. So like, you know, being mindful of those retail partners that we have and what they went through and, you know, not trying to be, I always think the best sales approach is not being like overly assertive or pushy, but really trying to understand what that account is dealing with, you know, whether it's what they've been dealing with from COVID, but also like, you know, what's going to work well for them in their concept, what's going to work well for their, their think it's different um, as kind of things have opened back up to really listening to those folks, kind of hearing what their issues are, what their concerns are and seeing how we can support them. So we love to, come to bars and do tastings and samplings and like, you know, support them with a little bit of attention that way um, to make sure that, Hey, you know, you, if you take a runner on this, cause we don't have the cheapest product out there. I'll, I'll be transparent. Like our, our kegs aren't the, the cheapest for a, a bar to pick up. Um, so we want to make sure that we're giving them the support so that it will definitely pull through. Um, and it's good for us as well. Right. Like, Again, not a lot of people understand imperial beers. Some people might be scared to try a, a bigger beer. So you get out there, you start sampling, you get that liquid to lips. And I think, you know, that that does all the selling you need out there. Um, and then that bar is also appreciative of the support that we're giving them. So um, I think now that we're, we're getting back into being able to do some of those things, there's a lot more comfort with being able to be like, all right, well, I know Greater Good's got my back as I take, you know, a runner on a, you know, $300 keg or something like that. Right. Okay. That's, that's really interesting as well. I guess I didn't really think about the price point of things, which if anyone, you know, is familiar with beers of this uh, ABV, it's just part of the game. It's, you know, this stuff is expensive to make and therefore, you know, it's expensive to purchase. Um, the, when you talk about the tastings, um, and I'm thinking about, you know, I often always like to consider for every, you know, brewery I speak to, like, I wonder if, um, like, about the, the gateway type of stuff, like, you know, it, is it, do, are you able to con convert newer drinkers or, you know, maybe sort of baby beer drinkers, if you want to, you know, newer folks to the thing, or, or they just, like you mentioned earlier, like the Bud Light drinkers where you give them uh, sole purpose pills or something and they're like, all right, yeah, this, I can do this. Um, you know, and then yep. once they sort of graduated from there, like, 
when you're doing the tastings and stuff, like what's that sort of process looking like for whether you know for, for conversion to the larger styles? Because I guess that's really what I'm thinking of here is that maybe people like oh IPAs are too hoppy. That's usually the one thing people don't understand what IPAs are, and then. Eight percent, like oh, that, or it's sometimes the opposite way around. Actually, like people don't understand that five percent is very, it's fine, um, and so some people are either scared of the eight percent or they don't think it's enough or something. Yeah, what what does that kind of look like, and what's the the general feedback, or how do you negate the obligations and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I would say objections. My fav- my my favorite thing is when we sample people that say, oh, I really don't like IPAs, like they're too bitter, like never drink IPAs. And I'm like, try a pulp daddy. <laughs> like, try a pulp daddy. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is like drinking juice. Like, and they're just like coming back for more. Um, and, and it's funny because I do think some of these bigger IPAs, when done right, are smoother. Sometimes you get a little bit more sweetness in them. You don't get that harsh bitterness um, as much as um, some kind of traditional IPAs because they can be a little bit more um, kind of balanced out, especially a, a big hazy IPA, right? Total juice bomb. Um, I mean, I I think without overtly trying somebody and sampling them on that, I think that consumer wouldn't choose that because they'd be scared to. They wouldn't know that it's not going to be, you know, what they associate as, you know, super bitter, you know, hot bomb kind of IPA. Um, but, you know, I mean, Everyone's going to try a free beer. No one's going to say say no to that. So you give them a you know a couple ounces. I'm like, hey, this is no pressure. Like, if you take a sip and you hate it, go back to drinking whatever you were drinking before. I'm not going to take offense to it. You do you. There's drinks for everybody. Um, but it's been fun to see how many people we've been able to to convert that way, um, and and how many people are just like really surprised either at the ABV or the lack of bitterness or the smoothness and kind of balance in a lot of our beers, which anytime we get feedback like that, we're like, check, we've done our job. This is exactly what we've set out to do. And it's not just us saying that to ourselves. It's now consumers telling us that that's the experience they're having with our products as well. That's cool. That's super cool. I guess it must be extra fascinating, I think, for just for what you guys do and just seeing how people react because I guess most people just wouldn't expect it and wouldn't even in particular if they're newer crowds. Do you have a, uh, what, what, which beer converts the most people? Um, I would say probably Pulp Daddy um, converts yeah. the most people. Um, our, um, our sours have been doing, uh, sours I think are also like an entry point uh, for people who aren't necessarily uh, beer drinkers. Um, I mentioned earlier that my brother, you know, says that I followed him into craft beer. Well, my mom says, like, what did I do to get, like, two kids in craft beer when I'm a wine drinker? Uh, <laughs> but now we've converted her over to sours, and she uh, she enjoys some sours. So I think those have also been another way in because it's just such a different taste profile than you know, what people associate with beer in their head yes. as if there's one definition of what beer is. That's part of the challenge, I guess, right? Of craft beer is breaking yep. that uh, perception. I, I, I'm not surprised you're saying that. I've noticed that uh, either it's either New England's and people are like, what the fuck is this? Or they'll try the sours, particularly if they're wine, white wine drinkers and, you know, specifically because it's that a little bit tart, a little bit fruity, and you're giving them a sour and they're like, oh, wow, this is... Particularly if it's not like some sort of, you know, the barrel-aged enamel 
strange yeah. thing, <laughs> which are, or have their time and place, love them, but you know, they're not really going to convert many folks. Um, mm-hmm. That's awesome. So I'm looking at the time again. I think, uh, like, I know we're pushing through these. Are you ready for the, the big one? Let's do it, man. All righty. Uh, can you grab the next one? Can you get set? Thank you. In order. Yeah. All right. Colleen, I'm ready. Show it up. Show the people what we're doing. Yes. Greylock. So this is Greylock. Uh, this is our biggest beer in the portfolio at 12%. So I'm only going to pour myself a small amount um, <laughs> so that I can get through the rest of this uh, this interview uh, appropriately. Um but Greylock is the highest peak in Massachusetts. Um, it's a it's a mountain. Um, so highest peak in Massachusetts is our yes. biggest beer. It's kind of the story behind it. Uh, we use Citro Mosaic as well as locally grown uh, pipette hops within this. Okay. Um, it is a quadruple dry hopped beer. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've we've probably used the phrase dangerously drinkable a few times already in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, this is that to a T. I think, um, you know, for for me, I think Greylock represents the epitome of what we set out to do with greater good of these really big beers, but in a very drinkable, very approachable way. Uh, Greylock was one of those first five beers um, that we came out with that I was alluding to yes. um, earlier. Um, so you can see kind of, it's got slightly different packaging. So that's the like actual Greylock Mountain. So all of our Passport series beers yep. kind of have this type of look and feel where they feature kind of the location that they're uh, inspired behind. So okay. that allows them to kind of stand out a little bit different from the rest of our portfolio. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, you know, like I said, the Citra Mosaic hops um, and then some locally grown hops, you get, I think, really um, good. Uh, you should get a lot of aroma on this one. Um, I think it gives probably the, the biggest aromatics, um, a lot of citrus uh, forward, um, but, but probably a little bit less kind of overtly like juice bomb kind of deal. So it's a little bit more of a mashup of using some, you know, Hops from the Pacific Northwest, a little bit of West Coast inspiration, but still trying to make that that true New England style. Um, I think you get a lot of grapefruit on this, um, okay. and then yeah, um, uh, maybe a little bit of like orange or passion fruit, some a little bit more tropical citrusiness. But I, I tend to get more grapefruit out of Greylock personally. I can get that for sure. Cheers. Cheers. Sorry, I jumped the gun mm. on that one. Mm. Please. Okay, grapefruit for sure. Honestly, that you mentioned earlier about failing blind uh, ABV tests, this doesn't taste like the body is insane. But I would not be like, yeah, that's twelve. I'd be like, yeah, that's nine. Yeah. Jesus, yep. this is yeah. I'm definitely gonna take this one easy. Fuck. Yeah, most people I would say guess like eight or nine. Maybe Tops. when when you, when you ask somebody, they're always like, "Oh, it's got to be big." So some some people will say ten, thinking that they're overshooting it, and I'm like, "Nope, keep going." Yeah, <laughs> um, ever everyone's certainly surprised to hear that it's a twelve percenter. Wow, the what was the this particular one? I mean, twelve percent is is extraordinarily bold. What was the sort of uh, thinking behind like going this, you know, this is like go the definition of go hard or go home type of thing. Um, yeah, where, where was the, where was, uh, 
pull coming from releasing something like this? Yeah, so like I said, Paul has a sciencey kind of background, so he wanted to test things pretty scientifically. Mm-hmm. And part of doing that was our first five beers, I think we had um, an eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12% beer so that we could see, like, hey, That's are people right. gravitating towards, like, which end of the spectrum are they gravitating towards? We had five different styles in that, so it was like, what style are they gravitating towards? Um, really, again, trying to get that proof of concept out there. Um, and so Greylock happened to just, you know, we, we had to fill a 12% slot. And so it was like, all right, we've got this inspiration from Greylock as the highest peak in Massachusetts. Let's make that one the biggest and, uh, and go from there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and like I said, all, all five of those beers really landed really well. And we've kept Greylock around ever since it's now our second largest, uh, brand. Um, and, and we're really proud that, you know, both Pulp Daddy and Greylock, despite being as big as they are and kind of definitely kind of one, two flagships for us, they are still growing like gangbusters for us. So collectively up about 20, 25% year to date, um, which is, you know, phenomenal growth to see off of the two largest brands in your portfolio. So definitely makes me happy from that lens. Oh, I totally see that. It's, it's fascinating to me that of all the ones that are like the second most popular, that it's this one. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it like people will get excited about, you know, everything that you're doing is big anyway, but this is the biggest of the big? Or is it is it just like, wow, I don't think I've really seen a 12%. I mean, I think I might have had, maybe had one. Because in Canada, they've got some ridiculous rule where I think the highest ABV you can legally have the beer is 11.9, which is so it's like, you know, brewers would say, yeah, the beer's 11.9 type of thing. Yeah, wink, wink, um, nudge, nudge. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I don't know if I have intentionally, I mean, that's for package stuff, I think, I mean, if you're distributing it. Um, but I don't recall off the top of my head something this large. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's what, what does it, to be honest. It's, like, a little bit of a unicorn out there. You're not going to find a lot of beers like Greylock. And so... Um, you know, I think within craft beer, if you're a, you know, uh, a craft beer consumer, you have a hankering for always trying to explore and try different things. And so when somebody sees a 12% beer, it's like, all right, gotta, gotta see what that's all about. Right. Um, and, and candidly, I think a lot of people try it assuming it's going to be bad. Like, you know, we, you talked a, a moment ago about like what converts the best, um, and I, I think Pulp Daddy for sure does that, but Greylock is what we get the most surprises about when we're at a tasting for sure. And we talk about Greylock, we explain that it's 12% and you get some people that are like, whoa, like start handing you the beer back. Like, I don't know that I want to try that. And I'm like, just try a sip. No one, no one's, you know, no be one's going to get hurt. You'll be yeah. fine. It's just a, a sip. Um, and then they're like, whoa. I would not have guessed that's 12%. You, you see him finish the rest of their glass, and I'm like, all right, well, you just had a nice beer shot. Congratulations. <laughs> you're, you're now a Greylock lover. Welcome to the family. <laughs> that's crazy. I, I kind of guess I'm not surprised because you're right. It seems like the shock uh, the shock value of something that big that is actually fantastic. It's, yeah, it's super interesting. It's just such a unique a difficult thing to do, and I think maybe, I don't know if we've really gone into that yet, but I don't think we can really overstate how hard it is to make high quality 
high ABV beers. Um, it's almost like, you know, you've got the, it's really difficult to make really tasty, very low, like extremely, like 2% beers and stuff. But yep. it's like, it's very difficult to make, you know, this can very, very quickly get, like we talked about earlier, get, particularly with the fruit of IPAs, get, you know, this sticky mess with, you know, too much malt and not, you know, you could overdo the hops or, or anything like that. I mean, I guess that speaks to the, the skills of the brewers and obviously a pull with the recipes and the whole team yeah. with, with putting this together. It's, um, it's very impressive to be yeah. this consistent. And yeah, I, w- I would say also the specialization in it, right? So I think it is tough for most brewers to nail something like this. But if you are doing exclusively 8% or above, and that is your like bread and butter, that is what you like eat, sleep and drink, that is like your whole universe. Um, I'm not like, I'm not letting them, you know, diminishing the the skill set that our brewers have. But, you know, part of it is just, you know, their experience doing exclusively big beers helps them kind of perfect the way to do this well. And, you know, I always say, yeah, every, every brewery now probably has a double IPA or an Imperial something in their portfolio. And the way I talk about that, you know, is I love to see the segment grow. But for all of them, it's a side hustle. And for us, it's our it's our main hustle, right? It's our only hustle. Like, And so from that lens, if I walk into a bar and they've got, you know, I'm not going to kid myself and say that they're going to have multiple high ABD draft lines um, on. They might have one, maybe two. Um, but if, that, if they only have one and it's not coming from America's all imperial brewing company, that bar is doing themselves a disservice. Or if they have two come on, you're not going to give us at least one of those high ABV handles. So like, you know, from, from us, I think we, we try to, you know, wear that positioning very loudly and proudly and use it as a, a, a big reason why, you know, we deserve the placements that, that we get, because, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go big, like do it from the guys that, that exclusively make big beers. Could not have said it better. That was, that was perfect. Um, I love that. I love that so much. And uh, I feel like that would be, I mean, can you say it to them like that? Or is that a little direct? Maybe for, uh... I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly direct and fairly competitive individual. So um, I, I, you know, don't shy away from saying that directly to, to somebody, you know, every salesperson has different styles. So I don't expect all of my sales guys to take that same approach. Um, and you got to kind of read the room a little bit to see what's going to resonate or not. But, you know, I, you know, for me, it's not being cocky or obnoxious. It's just being like, Hey, this is what we do. It's different than everyone else. And like, you know, any other brewery is going to walk in and talk to you about, you know, their high quality beer and there's tons of great beer out there, but no one else is going to walk through your door telling you that they only do this one thing. Mm. And so, you know, take that for what it's worth. Like, but, but from my vantage point, if you're going to like try something, you might as well try it from the experts. Facts. Fact. I love that. That is so cool. Yeah. I had a thought. So I want to run this by you. And I thought about this when I knew we were doing this. So over the last two years, obviously, um, you know, people are probably drinking a little more than they usually would. Um, and I had a brewer tell me recently, like not on the podcast, just we're having a chat. And he was like, they noticed that their sales for double IPAs from both the consumer side and from distro were dropping a little bit. 
and they do anything from like you know five percent pale ales, like the six to seven percent you know IPAs and the eight plus uh, doubles. And um, they were just saying they noticed that the interest is waning a little bit in the double IPA. So they've been leaning into the lower ABV ones and um, trying to work on improving the body and getting sort of a bit bigger bodied lower ABV beers because they thought people were, like you mentioned earlier, one, you know, these type of beers are just expensive by nature. Everyone knows that if you drink these beers, you know, you're going to be, you know, putting your money up for it. And so you should. And then two, it sort of hits the waistline a little harder. These are, uh, you know, a little more calories, more sugars, so on and so forth. So being that this is your entire business, and obviously, that, and this is why I'm curious, because obviously you, you're killing it, um, that might have been just an anecdote, this was completely anecdotal uh, observation for one brewer in one province type of thing. But I was just curious to see, has there been any, I mean, you've got sole purpose as well, so it kind of almost like negates my question to a degree but i was just curious if has there been have you seen any pendulum swings like i've been asking everybody that i know in the beer I'm like what do you think like what's your vibe on on all of this and everyone's like yeah you know, i'm still drinking doubles i'm, I'm loving them yeah. i haven't had anyone be like no i'm done with that man i'm only doing well you know I've, so curious your thoughts generally about that yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question, um, one that we think about a lot, one I get asked a lot about in, in settings like this. Um, and so I think there's two kind of main things that I would hit on. One, um, imperial beers are still growing. And I think, you know, without getting into like, it's, it's kind of a tough sub-segment of the category to always get like really clean data on. But if you just look at, you know, um, like IRI or Nielsen, and you look at kind of uh, the top beers out there, right? Like, let's not try to like boil the ocean and look at every Imperial beer and how it's doing. But, you know, as reported by IRI and Nielsen, the number two craft brand behind Blue Moon, which you can debate all day whether or not that's craft, but like it, within that reporting set, Blue Moon counts as, as craft. Um, number two behind that is Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA. So not like regular Voodoo Ranger, but their Imperial version. Hmm. And that beer is massive now. And like huge props to, to the folks at New Belgium for what they've done with the Voodoo Ranger series. I think, you know, a lot of folks in the industry are looking to that and being like, wow, they that was very successful, very interesting and strategic branding to kind of separate it from kind of their core lineup. But for me as you know, running an Imperial only brewery, I get so excited that the number two brand of craft beer in the United States is an Imperial IPA. Because if that doesn't lend, you know, validation to what we're doing or that there's potential there, I don't know what does. So that's kind of one piece that I would say that like empirically, I think the data would suggest Imperial beers are still growing. They're not going away, um, despite any kind of anecdotes. The other thing I would say, kind of hitting on your point around consumers moderating or you see all these non-alk trends or trying to watch calories and all of that, you know, people moderate in different ways, right? You know, moderation for some people might be uh, sober January. Moderation for other people might be I'm now only drinking seltzers because they're low calorie or, you know, I, I feel like they're healthier. Moderation for other people might be, all right, I'm only going to have one or two 
big high quality beers instead of crushing, you know, six or however many beers that they would have had in a previous drinking occasion. So I think that can look different for a lot of different people. Um, And I think we can't be quick to kind of typecast moderation as kind of one trend because there's so many different facets to what's going on there. Mm. Um, So I don't think that, you know, we are a bad option for people that are trying to moderate in different ways. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, you know, Paul, you know, as probably the, you know, founder creator of of the brewery who who wanted these big beers, like, he's like, I wanted it so I could have like one nice beer. Like when somebody has like a nice old fashioned as a nightcap, like why can't that be like a Greylock instead? Right. You know, you're not trying to like party with them and slam a case of them back with your friends, but you know, you can moderate and still get kind of that sensory experience, uh, experience that you're looking for that enjoyment without, you know, consuming a bunch of them and it kind of gets you there off of one beer. So again, yeah. lots of different ways for folks to moderate, um, which I, I don't think, um, maybe contrary to like the more obvious thing would be like, really you're an Imperial brewery and you're going to talk to me about moderation. But <laughs> I think we've got a role to play in that trend as well. Interesting. I, I really like that last point about having one quality beer. I was, I was talking to my friend about it maybe two nights ago, and I was like, yeah, what do you think? And he was saying that he doesn't quite feel that most single IPAs or whatever have the same level of body. So when he really wants that more richer drinking experience, he, he wants the double. Um, and I was even thinking for myself, I, I feel like overall, even we do the beer podcast and all this beer stuff, I'm still not a big volume guy i just can't do it my body doesn't doesn't work so much for me so i tried since the pandemic i tried to regulate my drinking in uh the days of the week and i've kept in a certain days that are off and wednesdays were supposed to be off for me but instead of taking it off i turned it into a the big beer wednesday so i'm not having you know start the night with a lager and go into an ipa and they're doing my usual kind of thing i only have one beer at the very end of the night so i've had dinner you know completely and then then i've I have one super high ABV beer for the exact way you described it. I can sit there with a high ABV beer and enjoy it. I don't have to worry about getting too trash because I know I won't because I have a full stomach and um, I can just really just soak it up and not have to, you know, there's no other beers where I'm drinking 11% at midnight after having four other beers, which would never be good for anybody. So, like, you're so right. Like, I I feel like I can very much align with that thinking that it sort of allows people to have that high quality and you can enjoy this gray love, which is, this is like a, it doesn't have to be a treat, but it kind of feels like a treat. For sure. So what I'm hearing is you need me to send you more beer for your Wednesday night, big beer, uh, sessions. <laughs> I would be on it. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> it's, 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 it just makes complete. It's, my friends always laugh at me because I'm like, it's a no drinking night. Then you have the biggest possible drinks. And if my girlfriend splits them with me, then I get to have two. So, yep. you know, do we get to, to have a couple of different ones? Because as a beer person who's been in the industry for a while, like yourself, I imagine you would have an unintentionally large uh, seller of just stuff that, that just happens to be because beer people are incredibly generous at all times and yep. you just end up with stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, shit, now I've got hundreds of bottles and all this stuff that are high quality but i can't drink all these so you end up with a seller and so so i was like that was my way to combat the seller problem was to be like all right i can't see any other way to fit this in my schedule but this is one way where i had nothing else and i really 
I start, I like really look forward to it because it's just, you know, I'm able to just have this one and maybe two beers if I'm splitting it or if I'm feeling a bit cocky, I might even go two back to back and I'll be able, you know, I'll be okay to handle it. Like you were sort of saying, even yeah. like, it's like having two of these gray locks, maybe two gray, two twelve. Uh, that's a lot, but still, yeah. yeah. It was interesting that you're saying that though, because I, I just definitely align with that. And I feel like that's kind of what it is because in the day where day and age where maybe just life, everything is like quick. Uh, you don't think about anything as much and it's not as like everything is less quality and it's just, you know, fast food, everything, whether it's social media, the videos are getting shorter. No one wants to sit there for a 10 minute YouTube video anymore. You want 30 second TikToks and stuff, you know, if you look at that and then compare it to, to beer, this is the complete opposite of that. This is like craftsmanship and, and quality that you can sit there and just soak this up and you don't have, you know, you can have it as an occasion if, your body allows and you want to have multiples and do it up. But if not, this is, yeah, I, I think that's a really great way to put it. That was a really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, zigging while everyone's ads, you know, ever, everyone else can do their, uh, their 10 second TikToks, and we're going to slow drink a nice, you know, savor a nice 12%, uh, you know, gray luck. <laughs> oh yeah. I love that. I think that's, uh, that's just a really smart way to approach it. Have you had, is this going to be the peak of the ABV, speaking of that, like, do you, do you foresee, you know, getting a bit north of that? So 12 is the highest we do. Um, we don't have any plans to go higher than that. Um, laws kind of vary state by state uh, down here in terms of what's of acceptable. Um, yeah. So that was, we have a, uh, right now we have a brew pub license versus like a farm brewer's license. All, all of the boring stuff that like, we don't need to go into different licensing types nice. for breweries. Uh, that, that's not great content for anybody out there. <laughs> but, um, but those different licenses also have different restrictions for the amount of ABV uh, that you can have. So, so right now we're, uh, we're staying capped at 12. Okay. But, but maybe, maybe we'll introduce another 12% beer to go, you know, side by side with Greylock. We'll, we'll have to, you know, Greylock. And then if, if we ever go bigger, we'll have to call it like Mount Everest or something like that to <laughs> tower over Greylock, yeah. stick with the mountain theme. It's the only way to do it. Have you, exactly. guys, uh, have you guys ever looked at a barrel program or anything like that for, for some of the DACA beers uh, and such? Yeah, we have a barrel program. Um, we cool. Every year we released a bourbon barrel-aged Ivana, which is our uh, Russian Imperial Stout. Um, it always, you know, go, goes really well. So I think yesterday or two days ago was like uh, National Bourbon Day. You know, all of those like made-up holidays that exist <laughs> just to give us ju- – just to give us an excuse to drink something different or do something different. So uh, – I know we were posting about our uh, bourbon barrel aged Havana on um, on social media, so, but we launch that every year uh, right around November. Okay, so it's a uh, sort of a seasonal Christmassy thing, nice and. Um, uh, I like that barrel. What kind of bourbon barrels do you use for that? I do not know off the top of my head. I did not do that piece of homework before. It's okay. I was like, I got excited. I, I, I can get back to you on that one um, offline. I'll ask one of my brewers what we use. No, no problem. I'm just scanning through the Instagram now looking for that. I mean, you guys do some really interesting stuff. Like, oh, even like the, you mentioned this before, the Lucidity, like an IPA with cherries. That's, was that one of the originals? That was one of the 
original ones, wasn't it? Or was that a seasonal? So Lucidity is a a year-round beer for us uh, right now. It's our clear IPA. Um, That was that one, okay. Yeah, and then occasionally we will, um, within the tap room, do kind of different, like, fruited twists on on some of our different beers. So Cherry Lucidity was a tap room only um, exclusive. I think we had just gotten some, like, really good cherries from our, our fruit provider, and we were like, what should we do with this? let's throw them in a batch of lucidity and see how it turns out. We were able to launch it right around uh, Valentine's day. So it had a really great kind of pink color. Um, And again, it's fun always to have some of those uh, tap room exclusives for me, cherry. Like I, I'm not the biggest fan of cherry as a flavor, but it was selling like crazy man in the tap room. And, you know, you'd walk, you'd walk around the tap room and everyone's drinking these like vibrant pink beers. And it's like, all right, Guess it worked, man. <laughs> Valentine's Day, you can't go past it. People love the uh, the bright pink beers. Yeah. I just found the uh, the Avani here. That looks awesome with the uh, the the chalk chips there. Mm-hmm. You know, tapping it there, yeah, yeah, nice little ten percent. I even saw you had an imperial like oatmeal stout at eight percent, which is super cool as well. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was called Java Mocha Chip. It was yeah. our like January, February, March uh, seasonal. Yep, there yep. it is. Um, really good. Yeah. So good. Um, perfect ABV for that. Yeah. That was, uh, also just a perfect time of year to be wanting to sip on that nice, like, you know, I'm a big coffee drinker. So like any kind of like coffee flavors that come through in those dark beers, that's, that's what I gravitate. Money. Do you guys use, I'm big on huge on coffee as well. Do you guys use, um, do you guys work with any like local, roasters for for beers and stuff yeah yep yeah we used a local um provider who was it for for java mocha um might even said here, Aco- yeah acoustic uh java locally here um there it is acoustic yeah acoustic java okay cool that's awesome are they like a third wave yeah they are like a third wave cafe yep fire i love that that makes me really happy i love it when breweries work with another business and, and I find that like coffee honestly if I had time I'd start a coffee podcast I'd love it I don't really know shit about it but I love it and it's I know same have you like even just the cuppings like I, I tried to do it I did it in Vermont one time and like I'm really bad at it because you had to do this weird thing with the spoon you had to suck it up like inhale it or something yeah it's weird it seems so so strange but I, I would yeah. love to do something like that uh, you know super fun right? yeah yeah Computations are fascinating. They have like it's like similar taste profiles to, to beer, which I you know I learned more about it from beer than you can apply it to wine. It's like the whole way through for any sort of like really crafted small batch um, beverages. Like the approach is great. So I really love seeing local businesses and like you know looking at this. If I was in Worcester, which I hope to to be at some point, I'm like oh, this is a place I would go immediately. They've got all the latte art on the there's like certain things that are hilarious with cafes and fire cafes they have the same characteristics like they always have the latte art and they have like you know open steel beams they usually have a lot of plants and, and wood like there's a bunch yep. of things it doesn't matter where in the world you are it's the same thing it's very fun totally it's kind of like the same thing though for breweries right like yes. there's that standard playbook like walk in exposed brick you know window into the brewery like you know uh you know the often the like generic like just black tap handles to try to get that like sleek look 
Whereas yep. I'm like, no, man, slap our slap our logo everywhere. Give us oh, yeah. our, our real path handles. Yes, brand um, it up. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, there's kind of that same playbook everywhere. <laughs> it's it's very, very funny. But that, that makes me very happy. Oh, of course, I'm like I'm looking at it right here. That actually had a full picture of the um you had a release on uh, January 14th, and there was a picture of the coffee beans here. I imagine was yep. that to do with one of the – was that the Havana, I guess? Maybe no, that, that was for Java. Oh, that was the Java. Java. Mocha. Okay, yeah. cool. I yeah, think that was for Java Mocha, no. I, would, I would assume, right around that time. Um, it was two posts away from that. You were 100% right. Yeah. Yeah, we tried to Very do cool. um, a lot for, like, all of our different, like, seasonals or rotationals, do, like, some teaser posts like a week or two before we're going to launch it, see if people can can guess what we're about to release. Um, just keeps it fun. It's beautiful. I love it. Very, very cool. Um, we, we, we keep pushing through. Shall we jump into the sour, the first sour? Yeah, Funk Daddy. Funk Daddy. Let's do it. I am ready. Another of the Daddy series. Okay. Exactly. So Funk Daddy here. Yes. Is, uh, there he is. Um, actually a sour IPA. Um, so it is a soured version of Pulp Daddy. It is essentially the Pulp Daddy oh, recipe, okay. just soured. Um, and it was our Smart. first real four-way into, uh, into sours. This is personally my favorite beer in our portfolio. Okay. Um, it's a big call. Yeah. Um, so 8%, uh, you know, soured IPA, kettled soured, pulp daddy, essentially. Um, it won silver at GABF last year uh, nice. in the, uh, you know, uh, contemporary sour uh, ale category. Um, so we're, we're hoping we can, uh, you know, perform as well with it. But for us, it was really the, uh, the full inspiration of us leaning more heavily into sours um, overall. I think um, I think the note that you get on this, the way I always talk about this beer is it's like an imperial shandy, Ooh, um, okay. which sounds which sounds really crazy, but you get I think a lot of like lemonadey kind of taste to it. Yeah. Um, and so wow. for me, like if you're not an IPA drinker, like this is a good gateway in. If you're not really a sour drinker, like it's also a gateway in from that perspective. So you know across the board, this is one of the most fun ones to like have people try. Um, and like I said, is like my, my favorite beer that we make right now. I love to so see cheers. it. Cheers. Cheers. Oh yeah. You're right. Imperial Shen. Right? Yeah. Super citrusy. You're a hundred, like the way you described that was on the money. It's sour and it's like, it's like I don't even know if I call it sour as much as tart. So it's not yep. like there's no that thing where you make a face. It's just like, oh, that's pleasant. Like that yeah. citrusy it, thing. The last one we tried might give you a little bit more of that. But, uh, but this, again, was kind of our gateway into, uh, into Sours. Again, playing off of the whole daddy situation. So we're actually um, – this podcast will come out after it because I think you said it was coming out next week. Next week. Um, but we're doing a big Father's Day fest at the uh, – the brewery because this weekend's Father's Day um, and we have a lot of daddies in the portfolio between Pulp Daddy and Punk Daddy and Blood Orange Pulp Daddy and and all of that. So uh, figured, you know, let's uh, let's invite everyone around to, uh, you know, drink some some good beer and celebrate the all of the dads out there as well as, you know, all of the daddies in, in our portfolio in terms yeah. of the beers. 
that's a great idea, and I didn't even think about the Father's Day uh, correlation with that. That's amazing. That's very, very cool. Yeah. Um, this is fascinating. It's just it's straight like, it's like lemon lime on the nose, like really heavy. Mm -hmm. Hence the, uh, the the green and uh, yellow label there. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that neon green color just like screams sour. So it's like, all right, you got to do something. Uh, kind of funky like that uh, when yeah. when you're launching a product like this. Of all of the beers, this is like I don't know if you know, four or five so far. This is the most dangerous. There is absolutely yes. no way in hell. You would that think that's eight percent. I gotta. I have to chill the fuck out. Like I really. I'm taking my. I've been actually looking <laughs> at how much I have there. I'm looking forward to knocking them afterwards. I think I've done done quite well. Uh, controlling myself because I just find you know you get in the conversation we're hanging out like taking the notes yeah. so I end up just like and I ask a short question and then you have a long answer so I just get to sit here and drink <laughs> it's kind of a good good gig for me so I've really exactly. tried to control that tonight because of this um, I can see this being a problem this is fantastic what so it's the like a kettle soured version of the pop daddy so is, is it it's the same hops I imagine then Yep. Mm, yeah, which is yeah, uh, citrus, citrus citrus mosaic. mosaic. Yep. Okay. And what else is done? Because it's got like a, a kind of a bit more of a bright yellow haze as opposed to, whoops, this one is like, well, actually looking at it in the camera, it actually barely looks different, but in person, it's kind of like slightly more orange, that's all. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what, what creates that because I, cause I ask the brewers constantly because like I said, like this is my favorite beer. I'm like, what are you doing to this? And they're like, we literally just kettled sour pulp daddy. Like, and I'm like, I think there's something you're not telling me. There's gotta be something <laughs> more going on, but there's no, no actual fruit thrown in. So it's just, you know, purely, um, a, you know, kettle sour, you know, sour IPA. And, okay. uh, you know, it, it's so bright, I think. Um, so, you know, refreshing. Like I said, it's like lemonade, man. Mm. This is so dangerous. Refreshing as hell. Um, I love that this is the beer that, like, the podcast is just going to go silent for, like, 30 seconds and we're just going to drink just, and not talk. It's, I can – I seriously <laughs> could – I'd be comfortable with that because I feel like we're, we're comfortable. We have a rapport. We're good. Yeah, it's like when you sit down at a, like, really good meal and, like, it suddenly goes quiet and no one's talking. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's compliments to the chef, right? So compliments to the brewers on this Yes, one. please give them my uh, – tip, tip, tip your hat to them for me. This is, um, this is, like, really crazy. And if all they've done is add just, you know, whatever, lacto or whatever it is in the chemical yep. souring, like, it's crazy. It's, like, a little bit funky, but it's more just kind of, like, tart and it's – there's something about the simplicity of this that just works so well. Yep. With no, it maybe I guess it must just be the the way that the kettle sour works with the citra mosaic to give it the lemon lime. I mean, I'm hypothesizing. I'm no brewer, just so I mean. You're yeah, not I I think sure. it might be like that because I mean, obviously with sours, like people aren't using citra and mosaic hops in a sour, and and again, this is a sour yeah. IPA. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cool thing to kind of experiment with. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's the other thing, actually. One thing I've, uh, I find that sour IPAs can be very hit and miss as well, just by the nature of a sour is made to be that. Whereas if you've taken an IPA and made it sour and it, it, it sometimes when they hit, 
to get this yeah. sometimes. Yes, I hope like people aren't stopping to tune in because they're checked out about the mashup of the those styles. It's the the purist, please don't check out. It's no, a no. good beer. <laughs> it's I can I'll speak to it. I'm gonna absolutely vouching for this. This is it's just it's crazy. I don't know. And there's something about this mouthfeel, and that's why this this deeper haze that I feel like it's slightly more opaque than the pulp daddy. Not by much. Yep. It's subtle, but it's making a difference. I mean, because I'm pouring, the, I've got a tinku, so it's a little, I emptied the whole can. Yeah, I've got all the yeast and everything in there. Yep. And I'm finding that the, it's like slightly more uh, opaque, which is sort of yep. resulting in the, I don't know if that's contributing to the mouthfeel, because the mouthfeel is crazy. Maybe. I, I think of it as, um, fluffier a little bit Fluffy. in terms of That's what uh, it is. in terms of the mouthfeel on yes. this one um yeah so wow. it's it, like it's haze isn't as like um it's not like a solid haze like you would get on pulp daddy it's like a cloudy like pillowy kind of haze yeah. to it how does this one sell then is, oh first question sorry is this year round or is this a uh, one of the rotations so we just made it year-round last month. Um, so okay. we had only done it, like, we would periodically drop it. Um, but again, we, like, started to build this entire series off of it, our, our 55 Fun Series, which we'll try last. Um, and so when I got in here, like, at, at Greater Good, I was like, wait, we have this whole series that was inspired off of Funk Daddy, and yet Funk Daddy isn't a core beer for us yet? And it's just personally my favorite. Come on, man. We got to make it year round. So right. uh, we, uh, and again, wanting to get some style uh, diversity. So we um, discontinued uh, another like just traditional, like hazy, juicy IPA that I thought had, you know, was a great performer for us in the portfolio, um, but I thought was too similar in flavor profile to Pulp Daddy that it was kind of stepping on each other's toes and it's like, why not get something a little bit different into the portfolio so that that year round lineup has a little bit more diversity. You get, you know, Pulp Daddy is a front runner on the like juicy, hazy situation. You get Funk Daddy as a sour IPA, you get a clear IPA in the mix. Like you just like a little bit more variety, even within our kind of IPA uh, segment there, rather than just having, a lot of juicy, hazy IPAs um, that, you know, all great in their own right. But it's like, you know, if, if you can only uh, if you can only take one to the dance, like you're taking Pulp Daddy, you're not taking that other one. So right. let's let's uh, let's get the opportunity for another awesome beer in the portfolio to shine a little bit more. So super pumped that this is year round for us now. Um, kind of too early to tell on kind of where it will you know, end up stacking up in our portfolio in terms of, you know, rank. Um, because like I said, we just launched it as a year round beer now. Um, but it, it's certainly gaining some traction and, you know, it, it's off of the fact that like anytime we did release it as a limited release, like it would fly for us and the whole funk series that, you know, it inspired has been doing really well for us. So in my mind, it was a no brainer to, to elevate this one up. Smart. I love it. Um, it's perfect. I had a question. No, there we go. So I love that. Now, as far as you talk about the IPA and keeping that portfolio uh, a little broader, you mentioned the clear IPA. Would you consider that one a West Coast IPA that's, you know, resinous, piney, dank type of thing? Or is it just kind of more like a tropical one that just doesn't have the same direct characteristics? 
we tried to do a little bit of an East Coast, West up, West Coast mashup. So um, uh, still getting a little bit of that like juicy and tropicalness, but but leaning a little bit more into kind of that that East Coast dank. I'll admit, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's going to say that like every beer that we make is, is phenomenal. We all agree that our clear IPA isn't what we want it to be yet. So we actually just last week did a like half day R&D session. We tried a bunch of different competitive uh, clear IPAs to just get different sources of inspiration and kind of stretch our thinking a little bit more. Um, and so what we're going to do, um, I think next month, we're going to brew kind of a reformulated version of Lucidity, kind of like what do we think could be the best version of that beer if we kind of tweaked it a little bit. And then in parallel, brew a brand new, completely new recipe for another clear IPA, let people in the tap room try them side by side. And whatever the consumers like best will be that new clear IPA that will take the spot. And if it is Lucidity 2.0, great. We'll, we'll keep running with that. If it is this other one, we'll figure out what the branding for that should be. And we'll kind of launch that. Um, because I'm a, I'm, I'm a big clear IPA gal. I'm, I'm not as, you know, on the haze craze as, uh, as most of my new England counterparts are up here. Um, so I'm like, all right, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. And with the same level of quality as everything else in our portfolio, there's still a place out there in the market for damn good clear IPAs. So let's make sure that we've got, you know, one of the best clear Imperial IPAs out there. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for any, any brewery to be critical and objective about what they're putting out there. Um, not to say that we don't have fans of, of lucidity as is, but I think, you know, we're not internally satisfied with it and we think we can do better. So let's, let's do better. Love to hear that. I love it. And I guess I was thinking you were in Portland. So Portland, you know, on the West Coast, you get on the West Coast yep. out there. I feel like there's an, it's interesting you mentioned all this because I feel like there's been a, um, obviously, you know, Hayes has dominated craft beer for the best, like five, five years, probably uh, globally. Like there's nowhere that really hasn't been touched by it. And I'm finding there's an interest now amongst the you know circles that I run in with beer and stuff. And people are interested very much so in the West Coast IPA specifically. Okay. I, mean, I wouldn't know if I, they wouldn't really consider it clear. They do. Sh I have people, I've seen people say, and I, I imagine it's in jest where they have the hashtag like make IPAs clear again. Um, yes. <laughs> which I was like, okay, well, fair enough. I, I support it. You support that? You're here for it. Okay. <laughs> West Coast IPAs are, are like almost underrated um, currently. So I definitely think there's room for it. And I think that the juxtaposition as such of a, you know, a clear, like a Pliny type of beer with, you know, with that resin dank pine that's just like bitter back, maybe not necessarily remember back in the mid 2000 and the 2010s where uh, the, uh, IBU race where you're trying to rip the rip your layer yeah, the off your top. palette wrecker kind of deal. Palette yeah. wrecker from Green Flash, exactly. Like that type of thing, maybe not quite to that extent, but just bringing back those flavors in a nice, subtle, maybe not subtle, but just like a nice, balanced way. It doesn't have to be extreme, like that's what we were going for back then. Just something that's like, and that alone, it's so different to the vast majority of what's out now. And I feel totally. like there's a, I'm, I guess I'd be, I, I think I already know your answer, but I'd be curious to your thoughts. I really feel like there's a gap in the market now for 
you know, for really solid West Coast IPAs in, in every single probably individual local market where if there's a brewery that can just knock them out the park. I can think of one not too far from here that does it. And I haven't, there's not really much else. We're in Montreal, Quebec. So in Quebec, there isn't really many other IPA, like West Coast. This one brewery does a series of West Coast that are named after the different types of trees. And I, I look forward to that beer because they nail every one. They're all very different. Different hops, different ABVs, different you know bodies and stuff, and it's fascinating. And I find that it's interesting to me because it's so uncommon. So yep. I'd be is is that something? I imagine that you're probably resonating with that. Yeah, I'm seeing the nods. Is that, sure. that inspire <laughs> what what your because this lucidity test is fantastic. I love the idea of this it's in your tap room. It's it's genius. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think. You know, craft as an industry, I mean, and any industry, right? Like you're always kind of chasing trends and like, you know, trying to jump on like what's the hottest thing. But sometimes in an industry like craft beer, where there's so much style diversity and so mm. many different nuances to beers and so many different sub segments to the IPA category now, it's like we can't let chasing the current trend or what's hot right now and I'm not saying that hazy IP like New England IPAs are a trend. They are here for for the long haul. They're like a third of all IPAs now are are hazy New England IPAs. But I think for a while there, like everyone was just trying to chase that and keep innovating around kind of that space. Mm-hmm. That they almost kind of stopped innovating on kind of the West Coast or clear IPAs, and so they still probably had you know some in their portfolio, but they weren't looking to like revamp that or modernize that style or, you know, take some of the things that we love about it, but like bring it into what's going to be relevant for consumers. Now mm. I'm like, bring me back some cascade, bring me back some centennial. Like I'm, I'm going to like sound like an old geezer. I feel like in saying that, <laughs> but like, but like, I mean, we can still like bring to life a really great beer that like plays into some of those uh, hops and some of those flavor characteristics um, but still in a really fresh and modern way. Um, and and we, we need to do that, right? Because, you know, like I said right now, like I'm only dedicating one spot in my like portfolio. There's only so many beers that we can have in a portfolio or for year-round beers. Mm. I'm not trying to do two clear IPAs in New England in our portfolio. Like I, I think they'd be stepping on each other's toes. But it's like, all right, like let's let's be as disciplined and dedicated to innovating around that style, perfecting it and putting the best quality beer out in the same way that we would put that energy behind a Pulp Daddy or a Funk Daddy or any of our new like sour series that like, it's like just because that was like the king of craft like 10 years ago doesn't mean that there's not still like fun and excitement and and innovation to have around that space. So, I mean, I think the whole team, like I said, we did like a half day R&D session. We tried like, 20 ish different beers. Um, I mean, it was a, it was an aggressive Friday afternoon, I would say at the, at the brewery and then Wi-Fi went down too. So we were like, all right, no one's got to go back to work. This is perfect. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, uh, I, I think somebody maybe sabotaged that probably on the team. It felt like, but, uh, Smart. but it was really great. It got us all energized behind it. it got every department sales, marketing, brewers like front of house like all like thinking about it all together 
Um, and that's where I think the best ideas can come out of even kind of refreshing ideas on a more traditional style um, and mm. bringing that to life and figuring out the way for us to do it in a greater good way. Hmm. I love that. It's just so cool that you're even taking it serious enough to bring your entire team. I actually was just in my head, I always thought it would be like the production team, not the entire uh, team, which is even better because the yeah. front of house are the ones, they're the ones talking to your customers every single yep. day, constantly. They would have such a, a valuable knowledge pool of you know what people want, what they're saying, what they're overhearing in the, in yep. the bar and stuff. So for people listening and uh, you know, particularly wanting to, to see what happens, what's the general time, I know you might not be able to, like the time frame, at least for the test, um, so we it, will be, yeah, we're going to be brewing those beers in um, in July, kind of the reformulated lucidity and kind of a, a new clear IPS, IPA recipe in July. And we'll release them um, early August in the tap room to do kind of side-by-side -side, uh, tasting for a while. Let, you know, a bunch of people for, you know, a few weeks as they're coming in to, to vote on their favorite. We'll probably, I'm, I'm sure we'll be posting all about it on social media as well to try to drive people into the tap room. Might even like, if we go with the the one that isn't lucidity, like might even do a little bit of a competition to see if somebody wants to uh, throw some ideas for names out there. And uh, if we if we take somebody's name, you know, give them some free beer or free mug club membership or something like that. Um, but I, I think it's awesome to get the consumers involved with it. I mean, you know, we, we talk so much to ourselves, right, you know, at any given brewery and within the industry as like a little bit of an echo chamber that it's like, hey, guys, like, let's not forget who's actually drinking our product <laughs> and who's actually paying the bills and who's actually like the most important part of this whole equation is uh, is the consumer. So, you know, let's get them involved. I love that. It's like, you know, the crowdsourcing real time bringing people in, getting to speak to them, see some faces at a time, you know, coming out of a, a period, like you were saying earlier, where we didn't get to do that for so long. And I feel like people would be excited for some sort of, you know, actual engagement and an opportunity to contribute to a final outcome um, for a beer that they want to be able to come back and, and continue to drink. I think that's, that's pretty damn cool. And I guess if you sell, you probably sell them, it's like a pen, You'd be like, hey, here's the, you get two paws of each and, you know. Hey, I mean, we're going to let everyone, whether you buy it or not, everyone who comes into the tap room in August when we release them will get small samples of each of them, whether they buy them or not. Okay. Um, okay. So we Ooh. want as many data points as possible, as much feedback as possible. Good point. Um, so, you know, sample them on it. Ideally, they love one of them enough as they as they have that sample as they're walking through the door that they want to purchase one of them. Um, but uh, but ultimately, we're just really looking for their their feedback on it. So you know, we're not going to charge people to give us great insight at the end of the day. So we're really excited about it, and uh, I think it'll be fun. We have a ton of amazing regulars and like mug club members and all of that that are regularly in the tap room. So I know. Those guys for sure will be all over this and give us, they, they never hold back with their opinions. So I, I know that they'll be all about telling us which, uh, which one of these two beers they like the best. That's awesome. That's awesome. I would love, I'm going to stay tuned because I really want to know how this all goes. I think it's, I haven't seen anything really like this before. 
It's yeah, I will. Uh, I'll, I'll try to uh, send you one of each, and uh, and you can uh, vote as well. Yeah, maybe we could do. Maybe we can even do like a live session or something on Instagram, where we hey, could cool. uh, talk about it and just encourage people to do that. Like, I'm definitely down for any sort of fun thing like that, where we can keep it more engaging, and maybe we could even plan it and get the audience to also maybe some other drinkers to do the same thing. And tuning, we can all drink them together. And we can actually talk through the thinking behind both of them. Yeah, that'd be an awesome idea. We'd, we'd totally be, be down for that. I'm totally shooting the shit live on, on doing this, but yeah, I feel like that could be, <laughs> that could be kind of I'll fun. Let, I'll, I'm leaving it to you to figure out the logistics behind that. Easy I will bring the beer. Yes. <laughs> you uh, you figure out all of all of this stuff. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I think that could be a really fun type of thing because you're doing that. If there's any way we can contribute to keeping that conversation alive, and if, you know, there might be some people that, Maybe the you know around maybe there might be a thing where people can buy a couple of the the, the cans like act, you know around maybe if it's not fully distributed but um, are you guys able to ship beer legally within mass like is that something that's a mass thing? No, not really. Oh, you don't have an online <laughs> store because we we can't do yeah. it here in Quebec either. Like as far as brewers yeah. in Quebec, you I mean, can't order from them. You can submit orders online and then pick up at the the tap room, but um, okay, that's cool. That's still cool. Not shipping. Okay, cool. Well, people, I guess I was just thinking to get the widest range, even just within the state, that people can uh, access it, and then we could be like, all right, at you know, eight p.m. on this night, we're gonna you know we're sitting down, and people can there, and we go, all right, guys, we're all cracking this one, and everyone can do it, and we can talk through whether it's you know you have you, we have a a brewer, maybe want to talk as well, so between a couple people from the team and yes definitely get a brewer involved you don't need just my tasting notes on that (laughs) might as well might as well talk to the experts on that stuff i think that'd be fun that could be fun we'll we'll we'll, we'll riff on that but i think that could be a cool little thing that uh do it just because i think it's a really i think it's like at a time like coming back to we keep looping back to other things we've said but you know that people are craving that type of engagement and sort of um, like you said, we're social creatures, and this is something that's social that we were like, you know, people can contribute to a change in, in something that they're passionate about. And if uh, you can sort of try it all together, understand a little bit more about, you know, because maybe not everyone can pop into the tap room to try it, but maybe they could order it and pick it up or something like that yep. and be able to try it and then try it as a group. I learned about these yep. things during um, the reason we even do it this way on podcasts is because I'd seen other breweries during the last two years do these like virtual tastings where they would sell a six pack for like 40 bucks or something. And yep. uh, they ship it out to everybody and they get like 300 people and they'd have these Zoom calls with the with the head brewer and the marketing person and they would talk through it all. And you know, even one of them, they even turned it into, they had bands and comedians and this whole like production to keep people yep. entertained. And I was like, oh, this is how you make these virtual things a little better. Where we're drinking the same thing and like yeah you give makes- them free beer and then that solves all the problems oh, well, it wasn't free it wasn't free they had to pay for it yes but the point was it was it was getting the audience to have the beers and that yep. you know they would join in and it became this little community thing and when for, for this specific example when they have a say in the outcome of it I don't know. That's kind of interesting. I think people uh, are going to yeah. be excited about yeah it. I'll also have my team like riff a little bit on like how we could you know explore trying to send out some samples to uh you know a, a group that wanted to participate in something like this um because i'm sure there's ways that we could figure that out there's always ways around things okay yes. we'll, we'll, we'll talk offline about that but i think that could be super fun i think that's just really really cool i like i just like the idea of also spreading 
I really love the West Coast. The West Coast is just so amazing, and I think it's uh, the more of them we can get out there that just you know haze is my thing very much. So so that's why you know, all of this stuff is very 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 the stuff I drink ninety percent of the time. But you know, I would it'd be cool to see some really quality you know West Coast IPAs out there a little bit more, just because. Not that there aren't, I just feel like maybe people aren't focusing on them as much and they don't really get to shine and they're being talked about and they're being hyped um, like they used to, which is For sure. uh, which how it is. Um, we're coming up on two hours. Do you want to do the last one? Because I am just, I'm powering through this bad boy. Yeah, man, let's dive in. It's uh, delicious. So, okay. yes, tell us about this one. There she last is. but not oh. least is our, yeah, our current um, beer in our 55 Funk series, which is our rotational fruited sour series. Every two months we come out with a new fruited sour. Um, right now we have a passion fruit guava sour that we will be tasting. Uh, this is the third iteration of this series. Um, after we crack this one open, I can tell you some fun stories about some of the other ones that have uh, come yes. through in this, uh, in this series. But I'm, I'm super proud of what the brewers have been doing with our sour program overall. Um, cool. And, you know, it, you know, it, this will definitely like hit you a lot more with the like puckering kind of sour uh, relative to what Funk Daddy did. Um, but okay. I still think our sours are like really drinkable and, um, you know, well balanced in kind of what, what they're doing. Um, so you get, um, kind of good acidity into this one for sure. Um, but then guava, I think gives a little bit of that sweetness to it for sure. Um, and you, oh, yeah. the, the smell that you get, I mean, it just instantly like fruit, just like right up those nostrils. Um, Heavily. It's, yeah. Ooh, particularly smell. I love smelling the can. Mm -hmm. It just like punches you in the face. Oh Yeah. Oh, that is gorgeous. Yeah, passion fruit guava, really great uh, flavor combo. Yep. Beautiful. Cheers. Yes, cheers. The, the final beer. The final one. Look at us. Oh, yeah. That's glorious. I feel like it's only going to get uh, thicker as I get to the bottom of this. Okay. This is also 8%. Um, yep. The five, the 55, what's that about? Is that... Uh, yeah, so... Our address at the uh, at the brewery is uh, 55, 55 Millbrook Street. Um, gotcha. So it's kind of a play off of that, um, and Perfect. kind of uh, with the uh, with the Funk series off of Funk Daddy. I love it. Yeah, it's the same uh, the same font with the Funk there. So is yep. this? So this is not a an, uh, the IPA backbone. This is a completely nope. different. Just um, a true sour. Okay. Yeah, this is kettle like, soured. So, yep. So this is like I would argue almost significant, maybe not significantly, but it's a lot more. Okay, it's like ooh, that's puckering, like you were saying, as compared yeah, to the for the funk daddy's a lot more um, softer, I guess. Subtle, yeah. Subtle, subtle, yep. and this is a little more intense, uh, direct with the um, with everything else. The passion fruit, yeah, I guess, so a little bit of that tartness for sure. Yeah, the passion fruit gets the tartness. The guava, I think, balances it and smooths it out because you get a little bit more sweetness from that. Yes. But if somebody walks into the brewery and is like, I'm a big sour drinker, we steer them towards the, like, 55 Funk series of, like, true fruited sours. 
more so than Funk Daddy, which is more of that like kind of gateway crossover situation. Gotcha. Um, but uh, but yeah, so this is our third iteration this year um, of the the Fifty Five Funk series. Our first one was a strawberry rhubarb. Um, then we did a key lime coconut, which we wish we had brewed twice as much as we did because it sold so quickly. By the time we wanted to brew a second batch of it, the lead time to get more coconut in was going to push us basically right up to the, the timing that we wanted to launch Passion Fruit Guava. Um, so we were like, all right, we'll just remember that for next year, mm-hmm. save it for a rainy day. Um, the next iteration is going to be a blueberry lemonade. Um, we are brewing that right now. It'll release um, uh, end of this month. And then as we go into fall, uh, we're going to do a peach cobbler uh, flavored one. Yes. Um, really trying to extend the sours like season, right? I think people think of sours as like summer beers. Um, and I think that they can be a, they can be good year round options. And then we're also oh, yeah. exploring, um, we're going to do a, uh, like funky festivist party in December at the brewery, <laughs> um, for any Seinfeld fans out there. Yes. Um, and so celebrate all of the funk series and funk beers, uh, during that. And we're still trying to figure out what the specialty, uh, releases, but, uh, I think the packaging is going to look kind of like ugly Christmas sweater kind of look to it. So uh, we're, we're in, we're in the thought process of what that will be, but it'll, it'll be something fun to, uh, to celebrate Festivus. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's awesome. I love that. This is like, that's a really cool series that you can really have a lot of fun with. And there's so much you can do with it. It's yeah. like a nice, uh, it's definitely, it's almost even though that one doesn't have any fruit, it almost feels like this is lighter. It's very light. Once again, there is no chance yep. in anyone's world that I think people would blind drink this. And that, 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 that it's eight percent, right? This is by far like the most dangerous. This is crazy. I guess. Yeah, have- and you don't see a ton of imperial sours out there. So again, no. this is our our stab at trying to like, you know, imperialize styles that aren't traditionally higher octane, um, and show that you know you can do that well and in a like really dangerously drinkable kind of way um and have a lot of fun with it yeah um this is really cool this is great these are like a, it's really cool to see i mean obviously when you had really two styles kind of overall from the sort of vast uh, portfolio but like these are five very very different beers that are it's, and it's actually perfect you know we're in june um this is the exactly what I wanted to drink right now for sure. And I imagine that this is, you know, this is what's going to be available. I think it's, uh, it's cool to see that you're able to do something super fun with all of these and then just keep switching them up, have this base and then tie it in with the, the funk daddy to the, um, yep. to the, to the flagship and stuff. It's like, it's, I guess what I'm noticing is very thoughtful and very, uh, you know, cautiously and carefully approached, which I like. There's not just like throwing shit at the wall and be like, yes, let's put that out. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you can tell at least with all of these, it's definitely like a, a common thread with everything. Yeah. We try, right? I mean, we still do some like crazy one-off stuff that it's like, damn, this is such a great beer, but like, how does it really fit into the like brand strategy or portfolio strategy? It's like, we'll figure it out. It's that good of a beer that we will figure it out. It'll, it'll keep selling now. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. 
I love it. Yeah. The sound was like killer. You can't be overly formulaic with that. Like you want to be intentional on like your strategy and your portfolio and your innovation, but you also just want to have some fun with it, man. Like we're in beer. We're not like, you know, some massive CPG company that's like having to be like super like, you know, 18 month lead times to come out with a new flavor of chips or whatever. It's like, let's have a little bit more fun with that. Exactly. You got to stay nimble and, you know, remembering his craft. I, I guess I just appre- I appreciate the, the thoughtfulness for it, but I guess it allows you that flexibility as well to just you know, put stuff out there. If it's got something to do with it, cool. If it doesn't, well, no, it's not a big deal as long as yep. it's high quality. But you are right, though, because when I first saw this, I was like, Imperial Sour, when I was first really understanding what you do, and I was like, and you just mentioned before, you don't really see Imperial Sours. I was like, I can't really think. I'm, like, I'm, I imagine it's it exists, but it's few and far between as far yeah, as... Yeah, I... I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, maybe because we've just had five beers on this, but <laughs> five, five imperial beers. I'm sure they're out there. Um, and we, uh, you know, I, I welcome anyone who's trying new things in the imperial space because, from my vantage point, you know, it's a rising tide lifts all ships. So the more we can get some really cool, different, unique imperial beers out there, and the more we can, you know, as a collective craft community, be educating people on it and experimenting in this way. Um, I, I'm all for anything that's going to grow this segment of the industry. Well said. I love that. I, I, I think it's uh, it's an interesting one. And I'm, I'm something that I'm, like I mentioned before, because I'd heard that feedback from other brewers about kind of the opposite way. I'm extra fascinated with this and the fact that it's still going very, very strong. So it shows it could just be a segment of a mar- one segment of a market of maybe one brewery's uh, you know, audience that are demanding a different thing. But obviously, this still exists, and I think once again, you encapsulated it perfectly by you know you don't have to have multiple of these. You could have one or two, and you just want a really high quality hanging you know, crafted beer when you are drinking as opposed to trying to just put back a whole bunch. And it's just like, it gives people an option, I guess. Uh, something, you know, particularly they might just, you know, maybe one 5% sour is enough, but if you go and have this B 8% sour, you're a little more satisfied, a little bit more yeah. sweetness, a little bit more body, a little bit yep. more to it, a little bit more of a buzz if, if that's how your body reacts. And, you know, you might just be like, oh, feel great right now. I'm good. Yeah. It's you like a, a nice a nice glass of wine. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to approach it. I love that. The one thing we didn't touch on that I want to get in at the end here was the actual, you know, obviously Massachusetts is a mecca of craft beer. It's uh like I said, for some reason I just I don't know why we hadn't get out there. It's, it's it's really genuinely ridiculous. But the general, I don't know if you could speak to the, the way that the market is moving, because obviously people are aware of the, the bigger breweries in the area that have, have been quite influential um, on craft beer as a whole. But like, what's, what's, what's it like in Massachusetts right now? What is the scene kind of like leaning towards is, you know, most people will probably think from the outside that everything is uh, hazy IPAs and, and that's all it is. Um, you know, what, what's the realities of the world in Massachusetts right now? 
Yeah, I mean, so I, I think we're just shy of 400 breweries in Massachusetts now. So for a pretty small uh, landmass state, I mean, we uh, we pack a lot of breweries in for sure. So um, there's a lot of, you know, a, a really strong local craft uh, community across the state. Um, I think, you know, it, like people would assume, um, it, it's not the like obvious wrong answer. It's the obvious right answer. There's a ton of New England hazy IPAs around. Um, but I would also say New England, I mean, I, I've had the privilege of working in craft beer across so many different regions in the, the United States. New England is different in a few ways. Um, one, uh, it's the home of some like regional powerhouses, right? In Sam Adams and in Harpoon. So you don't see as much of uh, the kind of other big national regional kind of players. Like uh, you don't see as much new Belgium. You don't see as much Sierra Nevada, all of that, um, which is a different dynamic because like you just look across, you know, every other region of the United States, those breweries would pop in like the top five they're like barely breaking a top 10 or top 15 in new England because there's a lot of like strong local regional loyalty up here. Um, but yeah, beer wise, new England hazies for sure. I'm seeing a lot more like lagers though. And like crispy boys kind of coming back. So I, I think, you know, that's always fun uh, for me. Um, when I, when I'm not drinking massive imperial beers at Greater Good, I love a good lager. I love just a good pale ale. So, um, you know, seeing a lot more lagers pop up, uh, you know, around uh, around the area. Um, but yeah, it, it's still very heavily dominated by by big juicy hazy uh, New England IPAs. Because again, there's a lot of New England pride, and I can say this as a not a New England native. Um, so hopefully no one from New England's going to like hate on me for that. But like people are just proud of where they're from. And like when when New England hazy IPAs took off, it's like, hey, we own yes. that. That's our thing. Like that's what we're all about. And so I think every brewery up here is like, you know, you can't not do it and not do it really well. Um, I previously managed a, another New England uh, brewery and uh, when, when we took them over, uh, and acquired them and kind of like, you know, you're not immediately trying to like jump in and like change everything about a brewery that you acquire because, you know, the reason why you acquired them is like all of the great things they were doing. The only thing that I was like, it's like, Hey guys, New England brewery, we don't have a New England IPA. Just throwing it out there. We might we might need to dabble. Um, so we we got into that because uh, again, it's kind of a, a ticket to the game kind of deal in in this neck of the woods. At this point, I feel yeah. like almost so sorry, like I, I feel like I I couldn't give you like a a cool unique gem about like the New England beer scene because it is kind of the obvious answer that like yeah, there's a lot of New England IPAs up around here, um, but. But, you know, just trying to tell the truth about what it's all about. That's what I wanted. That's all I can ask for. <laughs> no, it's like, it's what I expected. And it's like, I imagine that that is obviously dominating um, and continuing to do so. So why, you know, it'd almost be weird if you didn't. You're like, hey, we created this style. It's literally changed the entire face of craft beer. But yeah, we're not really doing that yeah. anymore. Like, they're too cool yeah, it'd be like being out of California brewery and not having a West Coast IPA. Like, exactly. come on. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. 
no, it's good. And 400 breweries out there is uh, is very spectacular. So no, this is this has been really cool, Colin. Like I've really enjoyed learning about this. And like I said, like you know, the the first and the only American imperial brewery. Nothing like it. It's extraordinarily unique. Uh, these five beers that we had tonight are fantastic. I think we did well. I'm feeling it, but I think we kept it uh, without getting too too messy. This could have been dangerous if we didn't control it. It could have been. It could have been real bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think we did pretty well. I think we did pretty damn well. Look, yes. I'm not going to say Well, not well done. I mean, I, I drink these every day. So, like, well done for you for uh, <sighs> you. keeping pace with these big beers. I'm proud. Well, Give, give, I appreciate that very much. Give me uh, an hour or two. Maybe you might not be so proud because uh, I got some work to do. But no, this, this awesome. has been really, really cool. Uh, I really appreciate your time and insight into all of this. This has been a really insightful conversation. I think that people will take a lot from it, uh, from the way that you guys approach everything and uh, just the, the real sort of strategic, thoughtful, um, you know, the, the, the way that everything that I think people don't speak about enough in beer that I mentioned earlier, I just I, I really value that. So thank you so much for uh, for bringing that here tonight. I love that. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, thank you for saying that, and thank you for inviting me on. This has been a lot of fun. It's always way more fun to do these types of things with a few beers in our hands, and right. even though we're not together, to kind of emulate that vibe of us just hanging out and have some beers and, and shooting the shit. Next best thing, but uh, we're going to have to get down there at some point. What I would love to do is take a screenshot for uh, the thumbnail. Do you want to hold up some of the uh, glorious cans we have here? Going to need to get a pulp daddy up in there. Obviously, need to get a pulp daddy up. Um, the, oh, I'm like, get... I've got bad aim. I feel like I'm there. Like, we go. Might, this is going to be the tell of like how... <laughs> how you how you feeling right now. There we go. Yeah, Perfect. There we go. All right, you ready? Gorgeous. Love it. Um, where can everybody find Greater Good Imperial Brewing online? Uh, yeah, so uh, greatergoodimperials.com, um, at uh, Greater Good Imperials on Instagram, Twitter, all of the different socials. Um, so we're, we're pretty easy to find. Um, but yeah, check us out. Um, and then in terms of distribution, obviously we're pretty concentrated in Massachusetts, but we also distribute in uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, Rhode Island, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, parts of New York. Um, you actually might be able to get it. Uh, nearest to you is in uh, Western New York. So if you dip right across the border, you uh, you should be able to find some greater good products. Love it. Love to hear it. For all the Canadians, make sure to head to Vermont. If you're in Ontario, head down to uh, Buffalo, Rochester Way and grab some. Um, stick around afterwards. I'm going to wrap this up and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish up uh, off air. But thank you once again, Colin, for your time and uh, the fantastic conversation. I appreciate you. Everybody, make sure you go follow Greg Good. And if you enjoyed the episode, smash the thumbs up. Hit subscribe below and hit the notification bell so you know when the new new drops. See, look, Colleen is throwing the thumbs. She's telling you right now. If you, um, what else do I have to say? I lost my uh, <laughs> momentum. Um, hit the notification bell. Follow us everywhere on social media at BAOS Podcast. And check out the long form audio. We drop every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. If you enjoyed it as well, give us that five-star rating. It helps a ton. Um, we will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you again, Colleen. Cheers, guys. Thank you.